Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Special guests today, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. Really very, very humbled that these guys took the time to come on the show. It, um, it blew me away, in, in fact, because uh, we, we were talking for a good two and a half hours. You'll see that this is a pretty long podcast. And then even after recording, we, we just hung out and chatted for another 30 minutes. And it, it's so amazing that uh, Max and Stacey give up so much of the time to come on, you know, the, the plebs podcasts and, uh, and help spread the word of, of Bitcoin. These stories that these guys get into are insane. And uh, after I, I, I released this, first of all, on YouTube, I'm just playing around a little bit, listeners, with, with YouTube and, uh, and audio. So uh, if you want to watch the YouTube, go over to the Once Bitten uh, channel. Uh, on there is um, this interview and the one I did with Michael Saylor. So I'll just be putting a little bit more content on there for, for those people. And the reason being, there's been requests from, from listeners to, to, to move across to YouTube as well. So just playing around with what works best. But um, yeah, you, you, <laughs> I, I asked them a question. Have you ever found yourself in any threatening situations? And I think the answer to that question turned into four or five different stories and is probably a good hour long of the segment in itself. But they were so fun and amazing stories that uh, I just wanted to... I, I couldn't stop them speaking. They, they were just so wrapped up in living these old memories together. And it was just amazing to watch. It was really, really fun. A great episode. And uh, yeah, if you do, if you do just watch that part on YouTube, you know, they, they're very animated and uh, full of smiles and laughing. And you can, you can tell like the connection these guys have is, is, you know, something special. So really, again, thank you so much to the both of you for coming on the show. Thank you everybody for listening. I hope you really enjoy this one. I'm sure you will. And uh, of course, before we start, um, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten if you're in the uk then head over to this exchange bitcoin only obi and the team doing some amazing work you can start stacking sats they have auto buys or you can start um, buying at uh, with one-time buys however you want to do it and uh, our cousins across the pond swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten also doing great work now available in every state so there's no excuse for you guys to go start stacking some sats and because we're in the run-up to christmas i want to give a big shout out to scott and the shammery team at play shammery scott has put together a great little gift that you could fill your kids christmas stockings with it's a fun little card game and uh you know it's great to to help kids understand 
And also don't forget Sats Ledger because uh, I love what uh, MTC BTC has done there as well. So they are unofficial shills. I just love what these guys are doing to help uh, educate the kids. So enjoy the episode. Hi, girls. Hi. Right, here we have Lauren. This is Lauren. She is nine. And this is Caitlin. She is 15. Hi, Caitlin. Oh, hi. Are you, so, are you both French now? Yeah, we can speak French. So can Max. <laughs> yeah, sure. I like your accent though. Sounds American. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I speak French. Yeah, I could do it. Yeah, you know, if I had to, I could, you know, but I'm not going to do it now because I'm American. You know what I'm saying? You probably went to American schools, right? In Singapore? Uh, no, um, I went to an international school for a while. Um, so I picked up an international accent. Um, and then Lauren, she was too young to go to school in Singapore. So I went to daycare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did go to daycare. Yeah. Right. Well, are you, are you going to ask the first questions, you guys? Yeah. yeah I'm going to ask first. You're going to ask first. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, I did. Well, well, first of all, welcome Max and Stacey. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to the Pleb podcasters. Uh, Max, I'm not sure if you are aware, but on my recent episode with Michael Saylor, he referred to you as the high priest of Bitcoin. So, <laughs> oh, that was on your podcast. Yes, and then uh, RDBTC made the great meme about that. <laughs> all right. Oh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, uh, okay, super. I, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. Lauren is here to ask the first question and Caitlin. Uh, Lauren, far away. So I heard that you do this like TV show thingy, Majiggy. And um, I, Daddy showed me this video about you getting in a fight with this guy. Why, why was it? Yeah, uh, why was I in that fight? <laughs> well, he made me mad, and I, I, uh, my, my emotions overcame my. I could not restrain myself, so uh, I got very physical and threw him out of the uh, studio. Uh, so that's what happened. That man, Jamie Dimon, is responsible for much of the destruction in the global financial system that has kind of loaded the globe up with debt so that youngsters like yourself and your sister, you know, are burdened with this debt that is restricting the economy. So, you know, while we don't condone violence, except for in the case of Jamie Dimon. <laughs> yeah, that's true, but uh, he still got me upset and I was unable to restrain myself. Were you frightened by it when you saw it? You were like, oh my God, that man looks crazy. No. No? You thought it was funny. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, yeah, I, I thought Max did a great job. He was, he was standing up for, for Bitcoin. Bitcoin. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, Caitlin, Caitlin has a question for Stacy, I believe. Um, so, so, most of your guests on your podcast study... Oh, mm -hmm. women. No. no, are men. It's not always women, sorry, always men. So I wanted to ask, why are there not many women in the Bitcoin space? Right. Well, 
You know what? Part of the thing is that men always reach out to us and say, can we be on your podcast? Can we, can I be on your show? Uh, women, uh, I've had a harder time getting them to be on the show. You know, uh, I think they're just a little bit more shy about being out there because our show goes out to tens of millions of people around the world. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, nasty people online. So they leave comments about how ugly you look or your hair is bad or something like that. And I, I think perhaps some people don't like hearing that. But it's a good point. There are a lot of women, though, in Bitcoin. They're just not as, um, you know, uh, they're they're not as, uh, you know, they don't go into studios and beat up other <laughs> other women and men and get attention. So, but there are a lot of women in Bitcoin. There's, you know, Elizabeth Stark. She uh, she's the founder of Lightning Labs, which is a really really important second layer on Bitcoin. You have Amanda Fabiano. She's uh, running mining operations for Mike Novogratz's operation. Um, there's Amity, who's a now Bitcoin core developer. There are so many women in the space. Melton Demirs, who is a, a Turkish and Dutch and American, um, who went before Congress and explained to them what uh, Bitcoin is. And that was a pivotal moment in Bitcoin history, I think. So I, I think there are a lot of women, but yeah, women don't tend to um, brag as much, maybe, and uh, and like go out there and say, "I'm number one, I'm number one," and uh, maybe we should uh, because that would get us more press attention. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I think you need more women on your podcast, Eddie. I I I'm welcoming as many guests as I can, and uh, if more women want to come on the show, I am absolutely open to it, especially to answer questions from you guys. Do you have any more yeah. questions for Max and Stacey? Um, no. Yeah, I got a question uh -oh. for Stacey. Yeah, nearer to the mic. How did you learn about Bitcoin? That's a good question. Well, we were actually living in Paris and there was a man named John Matonis who sent me an email uh, because we made our, our TV show, we covered banking, we covered central banks, we covered uh, gold and silver, and we were already covering financial markets. And I received an email from this guy, John Matonis, who said, have you heard of this thing called Bitcoin? And I had said, no. He says, well, I'm coming to Paris and I want to meet you and Max and come on your show and talk about it. So I booked him on the show to be interviewed by Max and we didn't we had no idea what bitcoin was and there was um, at that time it was in so he wrote to us in late 2010 there was very there was like you couldn't google it nobody was talking about bitcoin so it was unknown and i didn't really know what it was so he came on the show and you know it's been a journey since then it was very early 2011 bitcoin was one dollar and it was um you know we were all trying to figure it out because we didn't really know what it was. Nobody knew what it was. It was this new thing. And it at that time, it was really magic internet money. And we didn't know it was going to, well, some people did, like Hal Finney knew it was going to be like this multi-trillion dollar industry. But, you know, it, at that time, it was because somebody happened to write out one of these men who wrote to us to say, can I come on your show? <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what happens. There you go. 
Okay, so I thought your husband knew and then just blah, 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 talked about it all the time and then you got enough and then you just researched it. Because that's what daddy does. He just blabbers about it. That is a great way to explain it. Yes, Max did blabber about it. And he goes on stage and likes to blabber about it and scream and, and jump around. And that helps some people understand it better. And, you know, I, I think it's the, the point is, you know, this is a, a huge community around the world. And as your daddy knows, you know, it's it's we all we all help each other understand what Bitcoin is. And we've all evolved since the early days when nobody really knew how how amazing it was, like just how powerful it is. And um, Max's role in that was as, you know, through his um, entertainment, through his comedy, through his dancing around and blabbering, you know, he helped many people around the world understand it. And I am kind of like the, um, the calmer one, you know, that like you two sitting there asking the questions. And um, do you agree with that assessment, Max? Isn't it past your bedtime or something? Why am I get, take, getting all this abuse? It's like, oh, that guy's a blabbering guy. I don't know what's happening. I, you know, I came here on good faith. He's a nice guy. And all I get are these, this kind of feedback. I'm not happy about it one bit. I, if I were there, I'd pick you up right now and give you a shake and say, what's going on here? Out of the mouths of babes comes the truth. Oh, yeah. No, that's fine. I totally agree with all that. And it's a good question, you know. But now we're in a new phase. It's a new century and you are growing up in the age of bitcoin yeah you know you're going to be your life's going to be utterly transformed by this remarkable development in humanity so it's just getting started you you two are so lucky to be at this age you know born into this when max and i were your age we were born just at the beginning of the u.s dollar so the u.s dollar became the world's reserve currency in 1971 so we were coming into something that we didn't understand would just create a huge pile of debt and a lot of decay in our um, in our economies because of, you know, your dad might have taught you about time preference and stuff, but because of the US dollar, we sent all of our jobs overseas because we could do it. And now with a Bitcoin standard, I think our economies will become stronger because we can't afford to just send our jobs overseas. And I think you you two are lucky to be at this age now where you're into a Bitcoin standard, where we were born, we were young children in a into a US dollar standard. And we didn't know it at the time that it would be horrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we are lucky, but sometimes he goes overboard. <laughs> Quite a lot of the times, actually. Well, last question, and for Caitlin, because uh, it was prompted to you when we were watching some some old uh, footage of Kaiser Report to do some uh, research today. So, what's your question to, so, to Max? So we saw on the video, underneath the video, there was like a, a message saying that this channel is uh, financed. Is that the right word? Mm. Is financed um, by the Russian government or something like that, or like a Russian organization? And I just I wanted to ask, why is that under there? Like that's so weird. 
Right. Well, as you know, the last few years, uh, all social media has become the subject of huge controversy around the world because in the United States, there was this reaction to Trump as president that really scared a lot of people. And so the media companies, including YouTube and all the major media companies, decided that they needed to try to shape the message. They needed to, they decided that you were not able to interpret the message yourself, that you were too dumb. And they decided we needed to help frame the message for you so that you understand what a very small group in Washington and in Silicon Valley want you to think. And, and so it's an outrageous form of censorship. So this is censorship. This is when you have a, a state run or a, or a conglomerate like uh, YouTube uh, censor speech. And of course it's, it's horrible and it's anti-American and uh, you know, I'd rather be in France. I lived in France for many years. So I, I much prefer it than uh, what we have in the situation here. But that's, that's, that's the answer. It's a form of censorship that should be um, discouraged. But unfortunately, uh, with the election of Trump in 2016, the, the folks that run America freaked out uh, and they're still freaking out. Uh, and now we see it in the banking sector and we're seeing it in the financial sector because of Bitcoin. So in a lot of ways, you're entering a world where these countries like the United States and other countries are disintegrating right before our very eyes, like a sugar cube and a glass of water. And, and what's taking its place is a whole new paradigm, which is financed and funded and buttressed and fundamentally informed by Bitcoin. So it's, it's, it's an interesting transition. Um, and that's, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that a country like America didn't last more than 240 years. That's the sad news and didn't make it to the 21st century. Unfortunately, it kind of died. Um, that's the sad news. But, um, you know, with, with uh, destruction comes rebirth, right? So we're in a rebirth now and we're gonna see a whole new way to organize society going forward. Uh, for the first time ever in history, money has been separated from the state. So even though you've got states censoring speech in a, in a horrible way, the state itself is dying. And that's, that's what we need to go forward. And that's what, that's what the 21st century, that's what the next 10 years is all about. In 10 years time, the United States will be basically a channel on cable that you stream, it's like you'll have, you'll subscribe, you'll subscribe to something called America. And for $10 a month, you'll get old Ronald Reagan speeches. But the country itself will be gone. It'll be divided up into many, many pieces. And it'll all be run on, on Bitcoin. So uh, that's the good news. Okay. Answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> I would say very well. Okay, guys, do you want to say good night to yes. uh, Max and Stacy? Good night. Good night. Have a good podcast, the two of you. What's that? Have a good podcast, um, the two of you. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. See you guys. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, Sweet. I wanted, if you don't mind, if going back to 2011 when you when you first started learning about Bitcoin, I many of us here have have been, you know, bitten by Bitcoin, but 
not that early. You, you, you're pretty unique, the, the pair of you, to have, to have found it that early. What was the kind of feel back then? It must have been such a randomly small, weird little community. Uh, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about the characters in the space back then, uh, because now we're so used to seeing each other on Twitter and, you know, the memes and whatever else were just so great. And like Stacey, you said, this whole community has been built up and it's just amazing. And thank you so much, by the way, for, for coming on the podcast and helping spread the word as much as you have over the last nine years. But could, yeah, could you give us a few kind of stories from, from those really early days? driven by gamers, uh, the drug uh, underground drug business and adult uh, working business, you know, people in the adult adult working industry and hackers and coders. hackers. So it was used. Uh, so that was the crowd. So we went to the first really Bitcoin conference in Prague in 2011. And so it was, um, you know, it was the plaything of of the cypherpunks. You know, and they were at this for 20 years and they were these were hackers and and programmers and developers and trying to solve this problem and how to, you know, what's called the double spending problem and how to solve it. And they came there's there's 20 years of history here. I myself in the 1996 have a patent on a virtual currency, uh, which was um, basically is addressing the problem of digital scarcity. So that's that's a US patent. That, that I have that eventually we sold to Cantor Fitzgerald in 2001. So I, I was already aware of digital currencies and virtual currencies. And so when I heard about Bitcoin in 2011, you know, I, I really immediately uh, got, got into it because it's the way that they solved the scarcity problem was, was you know, amazing. And uh, it, it really um, introduced a whole new level of, of, of what, you, what you could do with this digital or virtual currency and um but the community itself so we we were very close to the guy named amir taki i wouldn't say very close but we were he organized this summer event in 2011 and he was at that time i think he was in fortune magazine and they were saying this guy's going to be a billionaire and um you know he was uh working at bitcoin magazine uh you know this no, is no, that was vitalik max no amir amir was also uh involved with bitcoin magazine as i'm going to say that uh, Vitalik uh, was also a writer for uh, Bitcoin Magazine, um, and then remember we went uh, to that editorial meeting for Bitcoin Magazine with Amir at a squat in London, and it was um, the thickest cloud of uh, marijuana smoke I, I could ever remember ever. Uh, and these guys are kind of laying out the the storyboards for the magazine, uh, you know, and so it was. Um, it, it, it had a lot of it, it was like a lot of the internet early internet days so the early internet days in the, early, in the mid 90s it was driven a lot by um, john perry barlow's idea of the the declaration of independence of cyberspace or the internet where you know it was really something that was going to be egalitarian and it was like timothy leary and dropping acid and total freedom you know and this is the internet when i was involved with the hollywood stock exchange in the mid 1990s this is the feeling of what the internet was all about. And then we had the crash of 2001. And what emerged from that crash were, um, you know, not quite Facebook yet, but Google and three or four other majors came to dominate the internet. So the internet really died from those early years. Uh, similarly with Bitcoin from 2011 to 2017, 
was the Wild West days. Then you had the crash of 2017, 2018. And from the crash now, it's, a, it's become institutional. It's become major corporations. It's a completely different market now. It's um, driven by big banks. And um, it's, it's a very, very different place than it was from 2011. The 2014 in particular was extremely erratic and crazy. They had the Mt. Gox crash in 2014 that wiped out half the uh, population of Bitcoiners. They've not, a lot of them never came back. They just got wiped out completely and never came back. Then you had a rebuild up through 2017, then that huge crash, which wiped out another generation. And then uh, this, the latest iteration is really super corporate, big institutions um, are getting involved. So the, the Wild West days are now, I say, officially over, you know, the, the, the new, it's a new era. So my experience, my memories of it, and I mean, I can only look back from 2020 and see what I thought of 2011, now looking back in hindsight, is that when John Matonos reached out to me, my first instinct was that this thing that he was calling Bitcoin was like the Hollywood dollar, which Max had the uh, patent on from the Hollywood Stock Exchange. So I said, oh, Max, this guy John Matonos is coming in and he's going to talk to you about this thing like the Hollywood dollar. So um, up until then, Max and I had talked about big banks. We had talked about central banks. We had talked a lot as an answer to those problems in the banking system as gold and silver. So we had gone to many gold and silver conferences and spoke at those. And, you know, everybody was a banker and dressed up or, you know, like a gold banker, you know, they're all respectable and cigar smoking and older people. And then, then we, we, we published this interview with John Matonis talking about Bitcoin. And I was surprised about how much hate there was because we had a huge gold community um, and libertarians, uh, how much hate there was. They were uh, screaming in our YouTube comments and there's still one comment there that you could see. And it says that this is a shit coin. Forget Bitcoin, it's shit coin. Um, this, whoever created this has run off with $50 million because that was the market cap, $50 million. So, um, uh, you know, maybe at that time, had they not been so upset, I wouldn't have inquired further. Like I was surprised, like, what, what are they seeing? Like, why are they so upset with this Bitcoin thing? And then Amir Taki, who was the first to write, uh, you know, he did the first BIP, right? So the Bitcoin Improvement Protocol. So he was early uh, mining Bitcoin at, um, you know, back in 2009, end of 2009, early 2010. Um, he reached out to us and, you know, he's a, you know, a cypherpunk sort of guy, but like extreme. And, um, he reached out to us, came on the show. We were talking to people just via the internet, you know, broadband like this to, for interviews for the show. And then we went to our first Bitcoin conference, which was in uh, Prague. And that was um, Amir Taki organized that. And everybody was young. Everybody was like a hacker. And um, like by our standards of be going to gold and silver conferences, it was like, we were like, what on earth is this? Like, who are these people? <laughs> what are we doing? It was all like in underground squats and, 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 you know, uh, you know, well, Amir Taki met us, you know, as we arrived at the hotel and he was like, like wide eyed. And he's like, I haven't slept for three days. 
because I think it's a social, you know, I think it's just a social protocol that they're trying to brainwash us into think wasting our half of our lives on sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I'd say another major character in the early, early days would definitely be Charlie Schramm over there at Insta. Bit Instant. Bit Instant, right. Bit Instant. And, um, you know, he, he really is, is a guy who he, he kind of personified a lot of what he, he came up against in those days is that a lot of people in the early days of Bitcoin, you know, they get those pinwheels in their eyes because when you start thinking about this, where it could go, what the potential is, your mind literally starts to melt. So a lot of these people, you just look in your eyes, it's like you just dropped acid or something because you, a lot of people could see 10 years ago where we are today and where we'll be in 20 years, right? They, 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 could, they instinctively knew it, they could see it. They, and, and you could just look in their eyes and they're like, they're, they're gone, man. And uh, you know, we run into a lot of those uh, types at that time. And, uh, you know, and, and speaking about what's happening now, 10 years ago, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience, you know, and now to see it all happening, I just saw a headline on CNBC that said that the dollar is losing world reserve currency and they had a big graphic of Bitcoin. You know, now this 10 years ago, that would have been, of course, absolutely unheard of and never thought ever to happen in anyone's lifetime. But, you know, 10 years later, here we are, you know, the dollar dollars under attack as world reserve currency, Bitcoin is on the ascendant. But at that time, back in 2011 and 2012, before, you know, there was, we were the only content creators, certainly on international television covering this. There were a few, um, you know, more like uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, podcasts that were covering it. Um, but we, people were still like, nobody, very few people, were thinking it would displace the dollar back then, the actual, like, so soon, like that people like Larry Fink, you know, head of the largest, uh, you know, BlackRock, you know, the head of the largest asset management company in the world with 7 trillion under management is, is suggesting that it could displace the dollar. Back then, you know, it was more confusion because there were all, it, it wasn't, there wasn't like Bitcoin Twitter, there weren't um, as, I mean, there was Bitcoin talk where you could go, but it was more, it was very uh, technical, more like coders and the Bitcoin core devs and stuff like that. So there wasn't really a community yet. There were a bunch of interesting, weird people. There was Amir Taki, there was Roger Ver, there was John Matonis, there, there was Charlie Shrem. But, you know, like a lot of the talk at that time was like BitPay was the early, one of the earliest companies in the space. And they, um, you know, it was about, replacing PayPal and Visa, like, so the mind blowingness of just replacing the US dollar and the global monetary system, you know, I mean, Max would say stuff like that on stage and, 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 but at that point, you know, the more, the majority of the conversation in the Bitcoin space, and you saw that unfold and come to a head with that block size thing was about payments, right? And, and now when you look back on it, you realize how small minded that was, right? It was so you were, they were thinking small when they had this amazing invention that was way bigger and we're seeing it now. So, I mean, I guess. Yeah. So we were talking a lot about gold and silver. Yeah. And then when we started we kind of switched over to Bitcoin, there was a lot of outrage in the gold and silver crowd. And uh, it was like Dylan going electric. <laughs> It's like the traditional folk music types were outraged. 
Um, and so we went electric with, with Bitcoin and the traditional gold bugs were, were, were outraged. And some of them today, like Peter Schiff, is still licking his wounds. He's still mortally wounded by this, that, that this market changed and, he, and left him behind. Right, so he's he's like uh, Nesmith, uh, Dorm, uh, uh, Norma Desmond, Norma Desmond of Sunset Boulevard. You know, like uh, it's it's like it's not that gold got got. You know, I'm still big. It's just that the gold market got small. You know, it's crazy. Right, and um, also back then, you know, I, I remember being really excited of actually spending this online. So I bought two iPhones that must have been in like 2013, maybe for 14 Bitcoin. And oh. I remember, <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I remember thinking like, Max, I can't believe Apple is sending us two iPhones. And I, I used uh, one of these gift card companies. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I thought that was the most exciting thing. Like I, I felt like, oh my God, I can't believe you could just bypass the banks and just like go directly and get this. And they're, they're sending that. Yeah, well, one of the, one of the first uh, bitcoins we got was uh, we we know somebody the the BitPay guy paid for our Tony flights, Gallippi Tony Gallippi over to Prague. Uh, so he sent us eight hundred bitcoin to cover <laughs> our flight. To That's yeah. crazy, so isn't it? That's that's right. great. That it's crazy to think about now, like the, yeah. the, the amount of Bitcoin that were being swapped between people uh, during those times. Um, just yes. yeah, it's, it's nuts. At what point do you do you guys looking back on it now? Uh, I know you've done uh, some pods about this, uh, especially with Breedlove talking about uh, cosmic stuff, falling down the rabbit hole. Uh, obviously, back then, that was just like you said, like the wild, wild west. I, I doubt like the kind of fundamental mind shifts or behavioral changes were coming in at that stage. They, they seem to happen a lot quicker now when people come across Bitcoin, like the class of 2020, obviously, king of class of 2020, you know, is going to pass with top honors, Michael Saylor. You know, you, you see these guys and these women come in, get Bitcoin instantly and fall down the rabbit hole, change behaviors, change their outlook on life, get cosmic in some cases, very philosophical. At what point do you think that started creeping in? Because you guys have been around so long. So it was kind of difficult to even think of Bitcoin as a store of value at that time for the majority of people, because it was so hard to secure your Bitcoin. There were a few exchanges that were that were easier to use than at the at the time you only had the QT wallet. You actually had to download the whole freaking blockchain on your laptop. And you know, laptops back in uh, 2011, you know, our my MacBook had like a 20 gig hard drive, and that was it, right? So it wasn't like a huge, and that was the biggest available at that time. So if you if your computer blew up and you you know it it, it partly because of this QT wallet, you know, taking up all the space and, and, and using so much energy, it, you know, it was so easy to lose them. Like they just blew up, they disappeared, your wallet crashed, you didn't know how to figure it out. Um, the few exchanges out there got hacked and like 800,000 Bitcoin at a time would be stolen from one of these exchanges or like 100,000 and just people run off. So like you were so used to it just like disappearing, like you'd have a couple hundred Bitcoin over there and it would just disappear and you'd be like, and there, and there's nobody 
to go tweet about and say, somebody stole my Bitcoin. There's like no nobody out there to hear you, right? So it, it seems so ephemeral back then. And there wasn't a community to tell your story to. And, but now, like we're all, I think that storytelling, sitting around this campfire and telling us our stories, like the repeating of these stories makes the community stronger and stronger. It, 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 it builds a common story about it. And it's so much easier now to uh, secure your Bitcoin. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like Fort Knox today compared to what, like it was just like, th we were running around throwing cash everywhere. <laughs> like if you look back at what basically the option was for the person who was a non-technical expert. Yeah, they, uh, we mentioned Michael Saylor there. So, you know, he first heard about it in 2013 and he was a skeptic and uh, he says, he, he points to 2017 and the block size wars when the nodes basically won out over the miners of what he calls the cyber hornets. And that was a fundamental shift in how people looked at Bitcoin. And so that's when he started thinking about this as a reserve for his company and and really doing the due diligence and, and asking himself, you know, where should we park this cash and where are we, what's the most prudent thing for the company? And what's interesting about what they did over their micro strategy was they, they, they had the option of using all that cash to buy back their own stock, but uh, that would be a bet on the current situation with the Fed continuing and being successful with all the money printing that they're doing that hasn't caused any real inflation. You know, the Fed is all saying they're trying to fight inflation and they're, they're targeting 2% inflation. Uh, but we all know that that is uh, not really the truth, that the, the real rate of inflation for stuff that people actually pay for is eight, 9% right now, and it's still climbing a lot higher. So he realized that the, this game that was being played by the Fed essentially is, is up, the game is up. So as he said, you know, he thought about his cash and the balance sheet is this melting ice cube, that inflation is a real problem. So what's the best way to protect? Then he looked at gold, then he looked at Bitcoin, then he, then he realized that Bitcoin was this immutable gold substitute that is unconfiscatable and has all these other attributes. And, and I would say, and so he made his move, and, you know, six months ago, seven months ago. But I, I think, you know, he would say, and I would agree with them that it was that uh, block size war of 2017, where really the community had like a civil war and the, the, the hard forks that went their own way are all dying on the vine, really. They're all hitting new all-time lows against Bitcoin. That was a huge disaster. It was a misreading of the white paper, right? Bitcoin cash, they zeroed in on the word cash and they decided that was how they were gonna orient their thinking. And that was incorrect that they misread the white paper um, and, and the other forks along with it, Bitcoin, Satoshi Vision and these other things, they're all, they're all dying because um, they fundamentally misread the white paper. They, they, they fundamentally don't understand what's going on. Um, whereas the, the developers that are continuing on as they have been, do understand what's going on and the, the, the markets now come to this, to this understanding of what's going on more fully. And then, you know, you have a lot of people coming into Bitcoin who are fluent in Bitcoin, but it doesn't necessarily mean they know anything about it. So there's a lot of buzzwords associated with Bitcoin and it's pretty easy to sound 
like you have a good understanding of Bitcoin after getting a handle on a lot of the different buzzwords, but it doesn't really mean people really un understand it, but that's fine because um, once it, once you start to think about it, it, it kind of works its way into your subconscious mind and your unconscious mind. And it, and it, and it starts to make changes in the way that you think. And I always say that big, don't try to change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. Uh, and that's what, that's what we've seen is that Bitcoin changes people, particularly millennials and Gen Z who figured out that the baby bloomers ripped them off and stole their future. And so they, they're fighting back and they're fighting back with Bitcoin as they should, that they should be doing. And um, so, but I think that that's when we saw a real shift was, was the 2017 block size. And also in the media, because up until 2017, you know, our show was really the only show that was really covering Bitcoin with any kind of audience. But during the block size wars, there some of these other podcasters like Tom Bays and the Vortex and these other folks, they, they, there was a real thirst for like, what is this block size war? Explain it to me, like what's going on here? And, and so they, be, they kind of launched a whole wave of media and podcasting because there was a huge thirst about how to explain more about this block size war. So that was the beginning of the Bitcoin media, uh, which is now three or three and a half years into it. And now it's, we've got all these podcasts and all these things are going on. And, and um, I think it grew out of that as well. Yeah, when do you think you guys started changing? And um, to to kind of give you a backhanded kind of compliment, when we were looking at the videos on the um, on the computer earlier, I look back and it's not to say you guys weren't in great shape back then, but right now you, you there's something different. Like there, there's definitely something different about your demeanor, about uh, the the way you look, the way you act, the the um, body shapes. Do do you think that that played a part at all? Do you have anything that you've changed fundamentally between the pair of you? Yeah, I, I definitely feel a, a lot different. And I look, um, when I made <laughs> to the series, I had to look back at all of our old content and I could, I could see it. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like there's pre 2017 Stacy and post 2017 Stacy. And I feel like that the, the fork wars, the block size wars and that hard fork, like made me realize you know, last year there was, in 2019, there was a woman in France who was in her 90s and she had grown up with this painting that she had over her stove for all her life. And she doesn't know how she got it. Her, her parents had it, like they all had it over their stove. Well, it turned out that it was a, a Florentine masterpiece. There's only um, 11 works of Cimabue who was like the predecessor to Da Vinci and Michelangelo. Like he was like, they happened because of him. Um, but it was like all that period for six years, we, we had a masterpiece in our presence and we didn't know it. We were just like baking uh, macaroni and cheese under it and like, and not using it to bake macaroni and cheese essentially, like using it as a little stove and, and not realizing what a masterpiece it was. So um, like, I kind of feel like we got to live with this masterpiece when nobody knew, like it was just sitting there like on, on the bench, like nobody really respected it the way it, what it was. So, I mean, it feels like 2017 when the hard fork happened and when 
the masterpiece was revealed, like that sort of knowledge and that sort of uh, freedom, everybody felt it. Like as Max said, like Michael Saylor understood it. And it, it, when your brain, when your mind changes like that, and when you could see that it's more than just circumventing PayPal and Visa, and it's actually circumventing, you know, two and a half thousand years of, of the state and the control of the monetary system and, and these, these notions of in, individual sovereignty actually became real. Like you, it, it's hard to describe, but you feel it. It's like, it's like an epiphany, right? Like it's a, it's a, people say it's like a religious uh, movement, but it's like a religious feeling. It's like an epiphany that once that changes in your mind, it's, it's hard to go back. Like you can't go back to being this, uh, the world became so huge. Like my mind became so huge. Possibility became huge. I didn't, you know, now looking back, I see like I was that old woman just cooking over, you know, food over a masterpiece and not realizing what I had. Um, so I, I just feel like that a, a sort of expansion in my, in my mind and it makes everything that time preference matter that has become so at the forefront of, of Bitcoin through uh, safe Dina Moose's work you know, there's so many things I don't care about anymore. I used to buy all the way up until like a year or two ago, clothes all the time and like new stuff and blah, blah, blah. And now like, instead of buying anything, like if I'm tempted to buy a pair of $600 shoes, I say, I'm going to buy $600 of Bitcoin right now. And, and just like, there's a, 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 a sort of, uh, that time preference alters your, your approach to life in a, a way that's so profound until, unless you experience it it's just difficult to describe what it actually is just like that woman looked at this painting and she was just like she just thought it was she thought it was a greek religious icon and um you know it's she liked the look of it but um she didn't know it was a masterpiece until somebody told her like but for us it was revealed that bitcoin was a masterpiece mm. Yeah, also around 2017, 2018, a few things happened. So um, our show, Kaiser Report, started to be dubbed into Spanish. And now it gets between one and two million views per episode. That's the dubbed version. And our following in the Spanish-speaking world, particularly in Mexico, is huge. And outside of America, Bitcoin is having profound impact right now. It's totally changing people's lives right now. This idea of hyper-Bitcoinization is happening in places like Nigeria, where 30% of the population is already just using Bitcoin day to day. They don't think about it anymore. They've already, they're already in the future. And countries where that have been sanctioned by the US or victimized by US foreign policy, uh, they are now embracing Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of countries are mining Bitcoin. Venezuela is mining Bitcoin. Uh, Kakistan has a huge Bitcoin commitment. And so countries that are, you know, struggling on the periphery of the US empire and the US century are now figuring out that the path toward independence and growth is through Bitcoin. And so our show goes out internationally, we go out to 100 countries, we get 30 million viewers a week. And um, so when when we started to realize the impact we were having globally, 
on a transition for the world into Bitcoin, it, it just made me think, you know, to get my focus a little bit uh, because this revolution is um, pretty, pretty seismic and um, it's exciting, of course. The other thing that happened, of course, the fork wars of 2017, it was the end of, of all of the naivete that was part of Bitcoin up until then. And it was the beginning of big Bitcoin, you know, the era of big Bitcoin. And um, so that's more of a, um, it, it, it brought in a lot of players that, you know, up the game, like the competition in Bitcoin media now is much higher than it was obviously when we first started, you know, we've got folks out there who are doing great work, you know, so we've got to keep it real and always think about our, what we're doing and improving it and focusing, you know, we can't be uh, rest on our laurels because the market's changing, is changing rapidly. Uh, and so we were always, uh, you know, hoping to, um, you know, bring something fresh to the, to the table and, and be competitive, right? So we're, we're still actively competing in this space and in this market. And so, um, because up until then, we really didn't have any competition, certainly for four or five years, there was nobody else out there. So it was easy to, you know, kind of take a less, less focused approach. But these days, you know, we've got, and in 2017, you know, CNBC started covering Bitcoin, but they did so very, very poorly. They had people on who were, should never have been on. They were talking about projects that never have been talked about. It was a mess. And we actually were kind of quiet in 2017 because it was like the, the, the circus had arrived in town and it's like, we, we didn't want to really get too involved in it. But then, the, then after the crash, uh, this new era of professionalism emerged. So, um, so it's been, it plays more to our strength. So this, this, this was, you know, good for us. So we, we kind of riding that, that wave going going forward and now we're trying to uh, kind of expand across you know the podcast orange pill podcast is only about four months old it's already doing really well it's kind of ahead of expectations so you know for 2021 we're, we have you know big plans of getting that really uh, out there uh, and some other things we've got in the works other plans to um, kind of uh, build on everything we've been doing doing for the past 10 years I think it's really important to point out that it's the individuals in those countries in particular, the individual human beings in Mexico, the individual human beings in Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela, and Cuba. Like there's a huge apparent uh, Bitcoin community in Cuba. Um, you know, those governments are also, uh, Venezuelan government is mining Bitcoin. Fuck the governments, right? We don't care about them. What we care about is the individuals and the individual humans that watch Kaiser report that because we get dubbed into Spanish, they have found Bitcoin from a very early time. I was looking for a comment that somebody from Argentina had sent that was so uh, like, it made me cry, right? Because he, he talked about how he discovered Bitcoin so early because of the dubbed version of, of Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert, uh, you know, on Kaiser report that he was a, he's been able to save his family and his life is just amazing because you know the hyperinflation that they have there is um, that's a, an individual unique human being that has was rescued from um, 
you know, uh, hyperinflation, which is a horrible situation for any human to be in. And then in, in Cuba, you know, I haven't really said much publicly, but, you know, over this, because I'm afraid, uh, like, I don't want them to get shut down. You know, I, I, I feel like, oh my God, like here, all these Cuban people are able to watch Kaiser report and there's a huge Bitcoin community there. And here's Cuba, which has had, you know, we talk about this U.S. dollar system and the reserve system and and the weaponization of the dollar over the past decade in particular. But Cuba was the first in terms of the sanctions, which always just hurt the individual humans there, right? Like who is the CIA has tried to kill Fidel Castro a couple dozen times, like they've sanctioned that and they've only harmed the people. But all the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars U.S. taxpayers have paid to try to change that system. Here, Max and Stacy just speak, and the people are getting to listen. And like, it's so shocking. We're altering lives there. We're improving and liberating the people there. We're liberating. At least there's about 50, 60, 75 people in our um, Orange Pill Telegram group from Cuba that have Bitcoin because they've been watching our show. So. You're like, what? Well, we're way more powerful than the CIA. Just our words of, of being able to get into them because our show is allowed to broadcast into there for some reason. And we've liberated dozens right. of people. You know, we, we figure we've created at least 100,000 Bitcoin millionaires over the past 10 years, you know, because people who bought a Bitcoin at a dollar, obviously it didn't take much to become a Bitcoin millionaire. And so we hear from those people every day from all over the world saying, you know, I, I got I got to go to college. I, I, my, I, I saved my family. I, you know. So there's just like a um, huge uh, group of folks all over the world where, where it really matters. I think the U.S. is going to be the last country to really understand Bitcoin and get Bitcoin because the U.S. is the world reserve currency. It's the U.S. dollar It is the empire. You know, and so this is you get the, the greatest friction you're going to have is in the U.S. It'll be the last country to get it. Um, which makes sense because it has the most to lose. And so it's going to cling to its the status quo to the bitter end. You know, it's like the Peter Schiffation of the Washington, right? Everyone in Washington will be, will be the bitter no coiner clinging to the legacy system until the bitter, bitter end, you know? And that's going to be what's happening in the U.S. Meanwhile, the rest of the world are all going to become Bitcoin, fabulously Bitcoin wealthy, individually sovereign, the nation states will start dissolving, as I was saying earlier, which I think will be the case because central banks are dissolving. And, and we're entering into uh, this Renaissance 2.0 period that Stacy coined, which is a, a whole nother era of, of exploration of the human possibilities. I, I also want a really important, I believe Michael Saylor, even though he has a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin is just as powerful or just as equal as Ala Kanani, Bitcoin lady in Botswana, who has perhaps a Bitcoin to her name. And that's what 2017 proved with the fork wars, is it didn't matter. All those whales, all those billionaires, all those multimillionaires. So you you know, that doesn't the the wealth, the the financial wealth does not give you power in Bitcoin. It was the users that had the power. It didn't matter how much money was behind the the people who wanted the big blocks they lost the people won and that's what i'm saying about cuba as well is we have think tanks we have the u.s military we have 
all sorts of money going into human rights organizations, trying to uh, rescue the people of, of, of Cuba. And all it takes is one Satoshi. If you have one penny, you are like a, like, like a god in this, in this monetary world. That's all it takes. It is the mindset as, as you are talking about, like you see a difference in us. Like once you get that uh, orange pilled, once that happens, that nobody could take it from you. You don't need to be rescued. You don't need a human rights organization in America to come to your rescue. You've been rescued, you rescued yourself. And all it took was one Satoshi. It didn't take a million dollars worth. It didn't take $10,000 worth. It took one penny worth. And that's all it takes to rescue you, liberate you. Yeah, that is, yeah, it's, go ahead, Max. No, no, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, it's, it, it must be so humbling to, to get those messages and to come to that realization that you, you've had such an impact on, on so many people's lives and will continue to because, you know, the ripple effects of that are just huge. Like you affect one family, then you're going to affect generations of people. So that's a heavy responsibility, I suppose, or that's something that drives you to keep going and keep fighting the, the, the good fight. And to, to where we are right now with all of the... The big money coming in, or you know, I'm going to use air quotes, listeners, smart money. Max, I'm sure you'll uh, have something to say about this. But the and Stacy, the interview the other day with uh, Larry Fink and uh, and Mark Carney, and Fink just you know sitting there and saying time after time again, it's like yeah, well, it's a market that's not been tested yet. It just it's untested, it's unproven. And I'm sitting there thinking. You have no fucking clue what you are talking about. <laughs> you 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 face any hodler and tell them that Bitcoin is an untested market and see how long you last. And but these guys are coming in, they're coming in with a fiat mindset, with a fiat exit mindset. Um, they're just. I mean, how do you think? How do you how do you see this playing out, Max? Well, first of all, as you say, okay, the responsibility you're saying that. We must yep. feel and we have no responsibility because bitcoin is completely decentralized if it was centralized and somehow we were associated with it then that would have some responsibility to it true but if, if we you know bitcoin we our impact on bitcoin like stacy was saying you know is zero it's no difference between michael saylor and alakanani uh, or the max the stacy kaiser or the your daughters who might have just bought some satoshis on their app right Nobody really has any impact on this thing. Nobody controls it. Mm. Nobody can steer it. It's gone its own vector and it's going its own path and nothing can stop it. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, humans could become extinct and Bitcoin would still be going uh, because it can still draw energy and it can still hash blocks and it still can go. You know, we, we don't, no one's can stop it. It's unstoppable. So we don't have any responsibility. My only, my, my, I don't, you know, I, we, we try to sh bring people into it and then, but if they're not ready for it, they're not ready for it. It's like people who uh, should be an Alcoholics Anonymous, but unless they're ready for it, unless they hit a bottom, they're not going to get the message. So you have people who are addicted to fiat and they haven't hit bottom. So Mark Carney uh, and Larry Fink, they are addicted to fiat and they have not hit bottom, right? They are very well-paid talking heads for the establishment and they can 
whinge about this and that. It's not going to stop their fiat money paycheck until that day arrives when suddenly the dollar collapses by 90%. Their net worth just got wiped out. They got no Bitcoin. Then they hit a bottom. Then they're like, well, how do I get Bitcoin? And that day will come. It will come to everyone someday. Everyone has going to have that day. If you don't have Bitcoin and you're just in fiat, you are going to hit bottom. And you're going to have to, even Peter Schiff, Jürgen Noriel Rubini, uh, Paul Krugman at the New York Times, uh, they're all going to have that day. It's going to come. It's going to be, my God, I was wrong. I have no Bitcoin and I am broke and my family is broke. We have nothing but work. Like the Venezuelan Bolivar, just piling up as trash in the streets. The military is broke. The Pentagon is broke. The government is broke. There's no way to defend it. Nobody wants it. Nobody's buying it. America is gone. And they're like, oh, I messed up. Right. So they have to meet that day. So when you see these guys like Larry Fink or uh, Mark Carney, they are a proxy for uh, of, uh, of the of, of the timeline that we're on. So you, you can sense, you know, you can like right now in the market, like apparently there's a distribution going on between Korea and Asia in North America. So a lot of, you know, back in 2017, during the last 20,000 peak, there was a huge amount of Asian buying. Apparently there's a lot of Asians selling right now because they're trying to break even. And so these North American money managers are accumulating. So we're having this battle at 20,000. Once you've got our, the balances hit and these Asians are, are be hit seller exhaustion, then you'll see some gap gap higher. That will bring us to 28, 30,000 pretty quickly. The dollar is the weakest it's been in two or three years. It'll probably hit a 10 to 15 year low in the next nine, nine months or so. Then you're going to have political chaos in the White House, of course. I think that will be when Larry Fink pukes. And he, he, I think that'll be his bottom. <laughs> I think visibly blowing chunks into the toilet bowl into the porcelain bus, porcelain uh, steering wheel, and, and he's going to have a bottom. He'll realize, you know what? My life is worthless. I've, everything I've done up until now has been a joke. Uh, I'm, I'm a fiat money addict, and I need, I need sobriety in the form of Bitcoin. Uh, that will, I think maybe nine months from now, Larry will have that day of reckoning. Mark Carney, um, you know, similarly, they're on the similar path. Uh, some people will just never get it ever. They'll go to the grave as bitter milk winners, like a Peter Schiff, for example. Yeah, that's very, very well summed up. Um, I want to talk about something that you, you're both very intertwined with, and that's uh, Hollywood. Um, I've listened to some of your previous episodes. Stacey, you come from that background max you're talking about the hollywood stock exchange and uh, and the coin and uh, that you were trying to uh, create now the short-sightedness of of that business looking at it now like with this covid pandemic 2020 studios are just going to be suffering so badly if they'd have picked up on your idea they could have hedged themselves against this and the reason i know a little bit about this you you mentioned you you sold the idea to to Kanta Fitzgerald. Uh, I worked at BGC Partners, which became can, um, BGC after um, 2000, uh, sorry, September 2000, so, Um And we were still trying to figure out a way to bring in a, an options market for film budgets. 
right up until I left that company in 2012. And it was still getting talked around in the boardrooms. Uh, you know, the, I don't know who you dealt with, whether it was Lutnik or Lavecchia at the time, but they were still trying to figure out a way to make this happen. And it was just getting yeah, shut can- down. Matt, that's yeah, a big story. I give you a story. I'll try to summarize it. So, <laughs> okay. Nineteen ninety-six. I was after living in Paris for five years. I went to Los Angeles because I had sold a treatment for a film to Miramax Films, and so I find myself in Los Angeles. The film was not being made. You know, it was slow tracked or whatever. So I hooked up with my old friend from Wall Street, and I said, you know, this town needs a box office features contract you know, to help these studios hedge their production budgets. And so we, we explored that for a few months. And it's like, you know, to launch a new contract like that would cost many, many millions of dollars. And I said, look, there's a thing called the internet now. And why don't we just create a virtual market and we'll create movie stocks, star bonds, we'll create our own currency, we'll create this virtual specialist, that's the patent is on the market making of virtual securities with a virtual currency. That's the virtual specialist patent that I invented. And so we launched that in um, 1996. Then in 2001, Cantor Fitzgerald decided that they had to own this thing. So they bought it out. They moved the whole thing to the top floor of the World Trade Center just a few months before 9-11. And then 9-11 hit and the whole thing got wiped out. What they were trying to do and what their thoughts were was that they would do a cash version of this box office virtual hedging contract or derivative contract. And um, I, I told them emphatically, don't do this because the MPAA, the lobbying group for Hollywood, is gonna be all up your ass and you're never gonna get along. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand anything. So they spent $20 million developing this box office features contract and the reason I knew that they would never launch is because even with the virtual Hollywood Stock Exchange, the studios were irate that we were predicting box office results six months to a year before they, before the box office opened, because it totally destroys the window model of Hollywood. You know, the window model is an opening weekend that they put all the marketing into the opening weekend, and then all the ancillary markets like foreign, cable, television are all keyed in on that opening five-day release. And so if you can telling me nine months in advance that Godzilla 3 is going to have a $40 million opening, I can, with some degree of certainty, that means that um, all of our marketing budget uh, around trying to convince people that it's actually going to make $120 million that weekend is nobody's going to believe it. Like the hype, we took that hype out of it and people were trading on the Hollywood Stock Exchange. They were, we had a window pre the opening window if you know what I'm saying here. So the, we were getting entertainment value out of these properties before they opened. And they were like, no, you can't do that because we want all this, you know, said, that's why, I, and, and so like, I remember Jeffrey Katzenberg was like calling the office telling me, you've got to change the price of this movie on the Hollywood Stock Exchange because people don't think it's going to open big. And I'm like, you know, uh, look, uh, the market is the market. I, you know, we don't, we don't change prices on the market. This is a, this is this is the fact. Jack, you know Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know I'm sorry, go away. So uh, sure enough, when they launched the cash version of this, just two weeks be- 
before it was going to launch, there was a bill circulating through Washington. It was the Dodd-Frank bill. And Chris Dodd of Dodd-Frank, they inserted in that bill a, a law that made it illegal in America to trade a box office futures contract and outlawed it. The law was passed. Canner's whole plans went up in smoke, as I predicted. Chris Dodd, the author of this, became head of the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America. So it was a total quid pro quo. So they, exactly what I said was going to happen, happened. And, you know, Howard Lutnick, you know, were their cantor, you know, I was like, it's not going to work, buddy. I've been doing this for years. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. You don't understand what's going on here. They're like, no, no, no. You know, we're on Wall Street. We know better. You're allowed Bitcoin futures, but not Hollywood box office right. futures. Hollywood it's is amazing. the only protected industry in America from financialization. You cannot do any financialization. Uh, of, of Now, having said all that, I will say that the Uniswap trading engine for that Uniswap, which is an exchange that trades a lot of these tokens, that engine is a ripoff of my invention. And if anyone at Cantor is listening, that's a serious patent infringement. You should go after those guys immediately. Uh, it's worth a lot of money right there because it's note for note, a ripoff of my virtual specialist patent 5950176. They'll just side note. But by the way, uh, BlackRock is the number one company in the world to reference that patent and building all their derivatives trading and ETF uh, uh, market making functionality. Right, it's it's a, it's a patent on how to trade a, a derivative, essentially, is why Cantor bought it. And after the 9-11 wiped everything out, they, what's, what survives of HSX is, is based on an old uh, iteration of the code. It, not, it, it, so the, it, it's, it's garbage, it's crap. Um, the actual most recent iteration and all the intellectual property is still sitting in several boxes in storage, you know, in Los Angeles uh, that I'm maintaining to this day. You know, nobody has, um, so, somebody bought it apparently uh, back in 2001. That's what I'm hearing. Um, you know, if they want to find out what they bought, they should get in touch with me. Otherwise, uh, they never really bought anything. As far as I'm concerned, they bought a big fat goose egg. Well, you'll be pleased to know they were still very salty about it in 2012 when, uh, when they were still yeah, talking about I'm it in gonna, the board. Toe to toe with Howard Lutnick right now. Get him on the phone. I think very salty about Max. Yeah, let's do it. You know, these guys, uh, you know, the Iowa Stock Exchange, well, you know, virtual currencies. This was the first virtual convertible, fully convertible virtual currency. So we gave everybody millions of Hollywood dollars, but we maintained a million to one exchange rate on eBay, which was brand new at the time. So you go on the Hollywood Stock Exchange, we give you 2 million. If you made 10 million, we'd buy back 10 million on eBay for at a million to one. Because if you made 10 million on HSX, we, we it's so, if you made essentially $8 on HSX, we know from data analysis that you had clicked on approximately $15 worth of ads. So we're still making 100% markup on our ad revenue if we're buying back your Hollywood dollars from you at a million to one. So, and then my, my thought was the, the, the exchange rate would, would improve. And you know, my, my hope was to get to one to one and to knock out the US dollar. As, as world reserve currency. I thought the Hollywood dollar could be the number one currency in the world because gaming could, this, we already had it. We had like a million users in six months. We could get a billion users, right? But 
Um, you know, we, we, it was a very, had a very contentious relationship with the board of directors and, um, they, they, their vision of this product was to sell research to studios like Katzenberg and others to help them market their films better. And my vision was we, we don't want to sell research to studios. We want to, we want to, we want to take, we want to take it all. It's winner take all. And we've got the best thing, you know, going. So this led to some boardroom conflicts and um and then canner came in and they bought the they, they acquired the property for a stock swap essentially through um a, you know a third party transaction that's in my view still needs to be looked at it's not terribly clear what went on but uh, nevertheless they claim ownership at that time and then they went down a path of a product that i knew emphatically and told them was going to result in a complete fucking disaster, which it did. And um, the, what they what they're left with is a bag of worms. So they paid a shitload of money for nothing. And what they thought they bought is sitting in a warehouse in Los Angeles to this day. So they didn't get shit. That's amazing. Fuck them. Go fuck themselves. That, that's my message. That's a great message. I, I'll, I'll pass it on. <laughs> the nicest version of that story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when um when you guys were were doing you, you you've I've heard so many great stories on on some other podcasts that you've you've done and obviously the work that you've done has been very well. Some would say controversial, but I mean what what's controversial about telling the truth, right? You know, just because you tell the truth and you, you, you're brave enough to tell the truth on television in the finance capital of the world, I'm using air quotes for those people that are listening, uh, in London, and you're going up against the gold market, the silver market, all the big banks, and, you know, vociferously uh, on television. Were there any, was there any point where you're just like, some weird stuff did did that start happening that you felt like hmm, are we being pressured by certain people here or well no like we didn't get any direct uh pushback from like jp morgan even though say like we were uh, exposing their gold market manipulation on kaiser report 10 years ago and they only just got charged with rico in the past year like we were like laying it out exactly as it happened and it took a long time but we never got any uh direct pushback from jp morgan or people like that but obviously in the united kingdom it's um it's a very bizarre uh beautifully uh uh run uh almost totalitarian in terms of free speech system there so you have this thing called ofcom which regulates media and they um, send you these letters and tell you what you can and can't say. Like basically they tell you what you said that was wrong, but you're not allowed to uh, ever publicly talk about what was in these letters. You're not allowed to give your side. They, they often do let like the times know that you were um, fair and un unfair and unbalanced <laughs> in your coverage, but you're not allowed to defend yourself. Otherwise you lose your broadcast license. So we got a lot of those letters from them when we were in the United Kingdom. I'm not allowed to say what they were about, but 
I mean, if you if you saw it, you like you would be like, this is Orwellian, right? Like it, it's so crazy. So yeah, we didn't feel um, comfortable being broadcast broadcasting there anymore, and that's why part of the reason why it was so easy to move back to the U.S. is like it it, it there was a lot of sense of pressure there um, that made us feel like we needed to flee. Um, when we were in France, you know, the French officials don't care what you say if it's in English. So nobody listened to us there. Yeah, so. nobody really knew enough English to know what I was saying most of the time. So we, I would say things on French TV, like France 24, which is English speaking, but in Paris, that were, I mean, I was just test to see how, what I could get away with. So I would say some really scatologically scatological disgusting things and with, with a straight face and then the french moderator would just be we we bien sûr we we hello so don't uh uh bientôt right and i just continue on and i'm like yeah that's right uh, i did just say that and the people in the audience are like what the f did he just say <laughs> but that was always fun but in, you know in the uk you're right so it was it was oppressive and what's what's remarkable is that um we've worked on international broadcasters all over the world in, in different continents. And um, on RT, we have editorial freedom like we do not have on the BBC. Yeah, we made a show for the BBC called The Oracle. And um, I mean, that there was a lot of pressure from, it was, it was hard work because they had a lot of, um, you know, I wouldn't call it censorship, but they definitely like wanted to know every single thing we were gonna say before we said it. Um, and they were very interested in orthodox thinkers and they bored the hell out of me um like they would be like oh joe stiglitz is in paris we were making the show in paris let's get him on the show and it's like joe stiglitz is on every show <laughs> financial news show like who needs to hear any more of him like what is like going to be new so luckily we had three guests on those shows so we could get some um more heterodox thinkers and that's always been our kind of market is the heterodox thinkers partly i mean the gold and silver market sure gold is the the second most traded market in the world so you wouldn't actually think of it as heterodox but the gold bugs are like they're anti-state anti-financial system anti-central banks which is a weird paradox really if you think about how big of a market it is but like a lot of those thinkers um you know, it's often restrictions that cause you uh, a lot of innovation and freedom and um, coming up with new ideas. So how we ended up going, creating so much content around um, anti-central bank or, you know, going down the libertarian route was we for our very first content we made was for Al Jazeera English, their launch week back in um, like 2005 or six. And so we were we were going to make a, a we made a program we made a film called Death of the Dollar, and right as we about we're about to start filming, um, it came out across the newspapers across the world that Bush and Blair had planned on bombing Al Jazeera, and like all our guests bailed, they're like we don't want to we don't want to appear on any Al Jazeera show because we don't want to be bombed or killed, and you know. At that time, it was um, we we were scared. Like I was thinking, like, oh my God, we're making shows for Al Jazeera, and suddenly Donald Rumsfeld's calling them terrorist TV, and um, you know they're they're threatening to bomb them. And I was like, are we doing the right thing? 
But, you know, it was, um, we had James Turk, who was the only guest that would, was willing to do it. And he was at goldmoney.com and a libertarian. And he had run, I think it was Chase or Citibank in Abu Dhabi, in, so for the Middle East. Uh, for years. So he was familiar with Al Jazeera already. And he was just like, I, I, I let him know everybody else had bailed. And he was like, I don't care. Like, uh, that's stupid. So he came on our show. So the, at that time, because we were working with Al Jazeera, we made 10 uh, doc documentary films for them, like financial documentaries with Max as a presenter, is libertarians and gold bugs were the only people willing to appear on the, on the network <laughs> with, in our content. So we naturally like started interviewing them and, and, and getting interested in their stories and, and, and letting them tell their stories. And, you know, that let it was so it was like it was government restriction. I mean, that that that, that period of, of nine post 9-11 and the Patriot Act. And I mean, it was pretty scary. It, we that was the only time I actually felt kind of at risk. Like we went a few years of not coming back to the U.S. because I thought we would maybe be arrested at JFK because we were working for Al Jazeera. So I, 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 I mean, cause it, it seems so extreme. Like everybody was afraid, like this is a terror TV and uh, everybody, if you, if you're, you're a collaborator, if you're working with them and. Yeah. If you remember the, 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 the mood was quite dark, frenetic and dark, you know, there was the freedom fries and yeah, everybody hated France. French's because... mustard was outlawed. So here we are living in Paris doing films for Al Jazeera English. Yeah. And they're talking about bombing uh, Al Jazeera headquarters. And so it was a bit nerve wracking uh, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the audience, we always felt like it's just tell them. I mean, you mentioned truth and journalism and journalism is the business of truth. But truth is um, you tell the truth as best as you can. But facts change, you know, and um, so you have to be aware of that. There is no absolute truth. I mean, that's getting back to Bitcoin for a second. It is unique in that there's absolute scarcity and that opens up a whole Pandora's box of philosophy. And there's a lot you can, you can go into that quite deeply. But in the case of journalism, they're supposed to pursue truth without bias. And, um, but truth is, 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 it's not absolute. There's, there's, the, the facts are constantly changing on the ground. So, you know, one, one thing that we always relied on to help us through the maze of all this geopolitical was our relationship. So we, if we're truthful in our relationship, then that truth will, will, will radiate in our journalism as well. And the audience, because we do these shows together, we're obviously together, we're married and we have a relationship. So, and anyone in a relationship knows that without truth, it doesn't, that's not sustainable. So the fact that you have a sustainable relationship must mean they have some familiarity with truth. Therefore, are we going to give them some credence when they're in their role as a journalist? So this is, this is uh, why we have such a strong following, I think, is because people, people think that we are really presenting what we believe to be the most truthful uh, facts and, and story at the time, you know, and we, we kind of specialize in these banks and the financial markets and, and these other items. And, and um, so, but what, you know, getting back to the BBC for a second, it was quite shocking, that level of censorship in the BBC. For example, we were doing a story about Bear Stearns uh, collapsing 
And um, it was international headlines that said Bear Stearns had just collapsed and they had a big, everyone was showing Bear Stearns building and the bankers walking out of the building and Bear Stearns had collapsed. The BBC says you could only say that a major Wall Street bank had collapsed. You cannot mention the name Bear Stearns. We're like, why? Well, because we want to remain as impartial as possible. But, you know, the facts are that they just collapsed and the name of the company is Bear Stearns. Uh, you know, this type of thing. Um, I, I'll tell you the most exciting story of, of all of them, but it, it, it separates us out as like, you know, we are, um, you know, we present an entertaining show to help, you know, deliver alternative financial news and economic news to people. There are people like Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, Glenn Greenwald, who take on the military industrial complex and the intelligence complex. I like try to avoid that because I, you know, I don't want to get stopped at borders. I don't want to get uh, sniper attacked or anything like I don't want the, that's where those are the journalists that like risk a lot. Uh, bankers like don't come after you. And we've never had any banker come after us, no matter what we say. No, because they can always print more money. They can always print more money. But like when we were with Al Jazeera, we went to Doha in, uh, you know, Qatar and in 2006, and um, we had watched, we were big fans of a film called Control Room. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's an amazing documentary and it shows you the workings of, it, it gets inside the control room of um, Al Jazeera Arabic as their, uh, the invasion of Iraq is happening in 2003. And it just shows it. Well, one of the star Arabic journalists um, is in there, right? And he's like, he's kind of a central character in that film. So when we arrived at, um, in Doha, we went out with, uh, one night with this British woman who was working at Al Jazeera English for this launch. And uh, we mentioned, oh, we love that film, Control Room. And we love that guy, I think his name is Hassan. And um, she's like, oh, I'm good friends with him here. Like we're having drinks at this uh, international hotel. You know, it's Wahhabi there. So you're not, they're not supposed to drink, but this guy did. Like he, she called him within five minutes, he showed up at this, uh, like the, the Four Seasons or something. And um, he comes and sits down and he's such a rock contour. Like he has amazing stories you would not believe. So like first he was telling, he just got back from San Francisco and I was like, like, we were like concerned about the bombing of Al Jazeera attempted by Bush and Blair. And I was like, did you have any problem getting into San Francisco? So this guy is Sudanese, but grew up in Saudi Arabia. And um, he's like, oh, yes, you know, the FBI, they pulled me over and I, they questioned me for a few hours. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, then I was like worried going maybe because we, you know, Al Jazeera and I don't want to go there. Then, um, so we were listening to his story and um, I said, oh, it was 2006. And I said, you know, the French media where we were living in Paris, the French media is saying that um, Bin Laden is like, has some kidney problems. He's like, no, no, he's like, I'm old friends with him. And um, I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yes, yes, I went to school with him in Jeddah. You know, uh, we, I, I grew up there and um, he sat next to me in, in class. And I was like, oh my God. So I said, if he walked in here right now, he'd come over and say hi. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, like I was like, well, give us a heads up. Like, I want to leave. <laughs> he's going to come walking in here. And uh, he's like, no, he's like, he's not sick. He goes, I was just invited to his wedding a, a few months ago in Quetta. And I was like, his wedding? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he got married and he, he just had twins. 
And I was like, well, then remember when he got assassinated, Bin Laden got assassinated. They said he had a wife, a new wife that they hadn't known about, they claim, and two twins uh, six or seven years later. But at the time, I was like, we didn't tell anybody because I was like, I don't want the fucking CIA to come uh, like waterboard me and tell me who told them. And I would, I would like point to that guy. I was like, go to him. He told us. I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to get involved in any of uh, like uh, stopped at borders. But plus, you didn't know, like, is this guy just talking, right? Like, he was drinking whiskey. I don't know. But it turned out, like, as soon as, like, uh, Bin Laden was assassinated, yeah, they say, and then when the New York, we were in uh, London, and the London Times, it had, like, a huge double-page spread, and he said, he had twins. Yeah. And, like, we literally <laughs> fell off the couch. <laughs> we were like, like that's exactly what this guy told us six years ago. <laughs> We had the story of the century. <laughs> we could have been on the cover of Time magazine with the greatest journalistic break ever. And we just sloughed it off like that guy's a joker. What the hell does he know? Yeah, but I didn't want to I like I didn't want to be soft and interrogated either. Like I, I just didn't Yeah, what's the upside to that? You're like, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna blow I'm gonna blow blow the story wide open. <laughs> And okay, it's a great story, but guess what? I'm now in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> or I uh, don't tell the story, and I miss out on telling the biggest story of the century. Uh, with, but but I'm not. Uh, you know, it's like you weigh this. This a calculation, really. Like, there's been a few times like that where you hear stories that are pretty remarkable. But that was definitely the biggest. That was a global international story. But yeah. by the way, I did follow up by asking him after he told us this. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, wait, when you got interviewed by these FBI agents at San Francisco airport, did they ask you about this? And he's like, no, no. <laughs> he said, they didn't ask me anything about Bin Laden. I was like, they did not know you were like old friends with him. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about, you know, just traveling the world and you know doing television doing stories you know you just meet a lot of people and it's really it's really hard to know like who's who where they're coming from what they're saying is it true you know they want they want us to say things because we have a huge audience right so you have to be aware of that mm. and but you want to get information also so you you're asking them about them you know who they are and there's this very uh, dance that goes on like who is everybody and um so but we we, we have heard amazing stories so like when we were in Athens covering the um, stories in Athens as the country was falling apart during the 2008 crisis, you know, we were holed up in a hotel on the main square in the middle of Athens. And uh, somehow somebody figured out I was tweeting from that hotel room. So this crowd of like 5,000 people gathered down on the streets chanting my name to come out and talk to the crowd because I had been talking about how the Greek people needed to insurrect against the, their government and bring you know back hard money, uh, and that they and I was going on TV and interviewing in in, in Athens and Greece about how corrupt everybody is in, in in Greece. So they literally dragged me out of the hotel and forced me to speak to all these people. Okay, Max is leaving out a crucial um, bit of that story. So uh, we arrived in, in St. Thomas Square. We had been making a film called Hot Spots Greece, and. Um, uh, we had filmed a few times in Greece and Athens. And um, I said, you know what we have to do? Because they had these huge protests, massive. And St. Thomas Square was always where it all ended, right in front of the parliament. And um, 
I said, let's get, let's stay at one of those, there's two posh hotels, like the King Edward and, and the Grand Britannia or something like that. And I said, let's stay at one of those rooms, get a room over the square and like film down there. So um, Malcolm Forbes, Steve Forbes, Steve Forbes was there. Um, so what happened is we, uh, we pulled up in the, in the, in the taxi. Um, it was so crowded in St. Thomas Square. Max went to the wrong hotel, right? And I went into the hotel to check in. Max went into the wrong hotel and Steve Forbes was sitting there in the lobby and Max went, hey, Steve, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm here with the Chamber of Commerce. We're looking at assets to buy. So um, Max goes like, oh, that's interesting. And he tweets and he says, I just ran into uh, Steve Forbes who's here to buy assets uh, uh, at knockdown prices. And that caused a fucking riot. Yeah, like, but he didn't know. Like he was just on Twitter, and it's just like I, it, you know, we're all you guys are bankers, right? And he's just like thinking, hey, I ran into C Forbes, who's here to buy some assets. Yeah, it's and it's assets. It spread to the outdoor community, who is like, Max is already really famous there because of some Al Jazeera appearances <laughs> that got dubbed into Greek, and. Um, it, Max was like yelling at the Greek official to put down his Uzo and like, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't give the bankers any of your money. Just like, you know, just, uh, you know, go bankrupt, don't pay them. And um, anyway, so everybody knew Max. So they were, I guess a lot of Greek people were following his Twitter account and they freaking stormed our fucking hotel. Yeah. Like um, I, I was filming and suddenly like everybody is like storming the hotel. And, and like throwing tear gas at us and rocks and stuff. I was like, what the fuck? Like it's, and then, so our hotel like had a, a lobby on the up, very top floor, like a bar. And they told us all to come up there. And um, we went up there and then I was like, oh Max, like I've got to go get my computer and my passport and stuff. Like the, people are breaking into the hotel. So we ran down there, we went and grabbed our stuff and we got in the elevator and there were, uh, these two guys with balaclavas on in the elevator and we we're like uh what what floor like we're, uh, we're just going to the top floor and we're just like <laughs> yeah the music's playing there's this guy in black outfit you know reeking of, of uh, tear gas with like a grenade on his belt or something and then we got like i had my laptop and i checked and i had an email saying max kaiser we know you're in there and i was like holy shit like it's like I thought they were gonna come get us. And they were like, can you come out and speak to us? So Max went out into the public square, St. Thomas Square and spoke to like 50, 60,000 people. And it was uh, it was insane. Yeah, I gave a rousing speech, yeah. And what like, did you say? I said they were right and the bankers are wrong and to stick with what they're doing because you're on the right side of history. And, um, <laughs> you know, basically that's my message. And- uh, Don't kill me. <laughs> please don't <laughs> And. Uh, and when we walked by, there was a huge line of police. You saw all those images then. Like, there were like 1,000 policemen just standing there, like in all these uh, riot gear. And they were like, Max Kaiser. Like, as soon as we walked past yeah. them, they, like, they knew who he was. Yeah, so, I mean, so if Bitcoin comes around in 2011 for us, like I immediately say, and it's on the Kaiser Report, this is the currency of resistance, right? Because all these disparate groups, all the anti-globalization movements, all the anti-government movements, all these movements have one common theme. They're all being victimized by fiat money. And Bitcoin is a fiat money killer. Bitcoin is a central bank killer. Bitcoin is a nation state killer. So uh, everybody, it's the currency of resistance, right? So that's what 
it, it galvanized all these different movements. And I'm like, look, you've all got the same problems, essentially. You're all being inflated away into oblivion. And Bitcoin is the, is the currency of resistance. So, so that's how we came to it. I mean, we came to it already, you know, hot under the collar. You know, it's already at these protests all over the world. You know, we went to Cairo after the revolution. We were there just a few days later after Mubarak fell. And we were doing shows in Cairo and, um, you know, out in the streets, talking to people, you know, rabble rousing, talking about, you know, it's a, insurrection is the, is the right thing to do in this case. Every, everybody knew us there in, um, in Terrier Yeah, they square. knew us. They knew the show. You know, we went right into the middle of the square, which was, that was for me, one of the scariest moments because there's literally 100,000 people. And at one point, some guy decided he was going to march a donkey into the middle of the square to meet me. So this donkey is coming in and it takes like 20 minutes and it's coming and coming and coming. And I'm like, what's, is there going to be a sacrifice to, you know, <laughs> my head or something? And so finally he gets there and he's like, he's this donkey. And then he turns the donkey around and he slaps his ass and he says, this is Mubarak. He's the donkey's ass. He said Gaddafi. Gaddafi. Bang, bang, bang. And I'm like, oh man, okay. Very funny. Very funny. Uh, and then, you know, we, we bolted out of there at that point. Yeah, there, it was uh, pretty scary because it, like we were surrounded. We were the like all the Western journalists had fled already, and so we were uh, because the police had fled as well. Yeah. So we and, and the, the hotel where uh, Anderson Cooper and stuff they burned that down. So um, you know, they, yeah. they, like there were all these buildings that were just like torched. You could see all the burn marks, and they were empty. Like, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> but I tell you something, you know. Right at a revolution with tear gas in the air in Cairo in a hotel room overlooking the Nile is one of the most romantic scenes you could ever hope to be involved with. I'm telling you, that was right out of Casablanca. That was the Humphrey Bogart moment right there. This was the most romantic moment of my life. It was incredible. I'm there with my wife and we're journalists and it's Cairo and it's a revolution and there's the Nile River. It's, it's utterly fantastic. It was amazing. And we walked every night. Um, remember, all the police fled because the revolution started on January 25th, which was the police day. And the women and the students hated the police. Police were the enforcers from Mubarak. So they fled. They weren't around. But the military at that time, they were still like, everybody loved the military. So um, we were staying in the Kempinski Hotel. And there was a restaurant like called Lebanon or something. Uh, just like a few blocks away that we walked to every night for dinner. And there were um, these Egyptian military guys on tanks, just like lounging around on the top of their tanks, right in front of the British consulate there. So they were just defending the British consulate. And they said, like, wave to us every night. And then our last night there in Cairo, they um, are the, we're in a 900 room hotel. There's only five rooms including ours, like everybody had fled, like nobody was in town. So it was like a big, huge hotel that was empty. And the, 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 you know, the manager said to us when we walked in, he said, um, the last day, he's like, did you guys go to uh, that restaurant last night and walk by some and the soldiers there? And we we're like, yeah, and he goes, they want you to come and take a photo with them tonight. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be like a Hanoi Jane moment. <laughs> I was like, what do we do? We, we're, we're leaving at like four or five in the morning. Like, yeah. how do we, like, 
And we so we just ordered room service. We were we had planned to go to dinner yeah. there, and I was like, let's hide and hopefully they don't come and try to take a photo with us in our room. Or yeah, something. usually you can get to these places for a day or two, but then <laughs> but then the people start to ask questions like, who are these two? Why are they here? They wanted a photo with us, yeah. so uh, we said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll go there tonight. Yeah, sure. and then we just stayed in our room and hid in there. Then we split. <laughs> that place was crawling with the CIA contractors like you go to the pool on the roof and they're all there in their military vests and shit and they're like talking shop about plosives and all this thing and you're like and, and I'm, I'm 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 a, i like to play along like uh they look at me like what's this guy doing well everybody thought he was cia in the square that's the yeah. thing it's like when we got surrounded by people they would be like are you american they, they like dozens of people like right this close are you american they were like uh yeah and they were like we love americans we hate your government and yeah. i was like fuck our government yeah fuck them yeah, yeah great. <laughs> um but and then another one funny story is that our our al jazeera executive was amazing like he was a really cool guy we we liked him a lot he was a british guy he had come over from the bbc but like <laughs> So this is in like 2006, 2007. And he came up with this idea that he wanted to send Max and me into the axis of evil countries. Remember that speech about the axis of evil, which was um, Iran, North Korea, and maybe Syria. I forget the other, the third country. But Max is like, no, <laughs> I don't want to go into the axis of evil countries. Like send, he's like, I don't know how North Korea is going to be the most difficult. We have to like try to get you over the border, and we're like, yeah, I don't want to go to a war camp. <laughs> we're like, we're entertainers. Like we're trying to like, we want to have fun doing this. We don't want to end up in a gulag in North Korea. But where where was where were we when those fighter jets almost blew us out of the water? Abu Dhabi? No, no, no. So we went. We were. Um, we made a film about peak oil. Like we were, well, when we were talking about oil and how oil uh, zones end up being conflict zones. So we were, <laughs> we were in Doha and um, uh, we decided we had our camera guy there, Max's childhood friend, and we had his camera and we said like, let's go out in this Dow, right? These uh, run by some Bangladeshi guys. Um, let's go out into the Gulf, you know, the Persian Gulf or as they call it there, the Arabian Gulf. And, um, you know, it lets, I said, David, like film any sort of um, oil installations or anything militaristic. And little did we know that fortunately for us, it was the French military, but the French military was doing an air show. And all of these fighter jets go flying overhead, spewing red, white, and blue behind them. You know, the French colors of their flag too. So I was like, oh, David, film that. So <laughs> we're out in a, a little dow in the middle of the Persian Gulf, and he's up there filming these planes flying overhead. Right, this huge camera on his shoulder, <laughs> like a rocket propelled grenade launcher <laughs> at the aircraft. And my my uncle, right? who's who's who was in the military in the air force for twenty years, he's like, "You guys are such assholes. You know they could see like the color of your eyes from yeah. up there." And so sure enough, one of them breaks <laughs> ranks and is up there. Comes like this high, you know, right an attack us. mode. They're like, "We're about to get blown out of the Gulf." Yeah, 
like Dave, we all dove onto the floor because yeah. he came like the, the pilot came down to look and see who we were. And you could see the pilot. And it's like a fucking like F-16 right over you, like boom. Yeah. And we're like screaming and our, our and like with our ears plugged and like, Screaming, you know. And the Bangladeshi guys are just like this, like holding on to the Dow thing. Like yeah. it's calm as fuck. And yeah, they were ready to meet Allah. They don't give a shit. <laughs> they didn't care at all. And then um and then the then the jet flew away. And like within two, three minutes, a Navy, uh, a, a Coast Guard sort of boat came out. Yeah. And and like the Qatari guy running it, he's like, looks at us like, you know, sees we're not some terrorists shooting at these planes. And he's like, starts yelling at the Bangladeshi, uh, you know, boat drivers and, and they uh, captains and they, and they were like pointing at us, like blaming us. Yeah. And uh, so like, he told us like, there's fighter jets overhead. Why are you guys filming and like pointing something at it? And it's like, we wanted it for the film. Yeah, we're making a movie here. We're journalists. I, but afterwards, we were like, we're so lucky they weren't American because Americans just would have bombed us. They wouldn't have even bothered coming down to look, right? Because, you know, French fighter pilots are kind of like that. They're like, okay, I'm going to go take a look. I'll, I'll risk it. Like, yeah, we'll like it. they might have a shoulder launch missile. Like he came down to look at least before, uh, you know, just yeah. bombing us. Americans would have just like dropped the bomb saying, the, that guy, I'm, I'm at risk. I'm they would have painted the target and blown us out of the water. <laughs> It'd be so That's amazing it. if one day this, this story comes full circle and you meet the pilot that come and buzzed you. <laughs> yeah, cool. It was so terrifying. Like you wouldn't believe how loud it was. Yeah, it was terrifying. It happened all like within 20 seconds, it escalated yeah. from around here in the water, like, oh, I don't want to be out here. I'm so boring to be. We're going to get blown out of the water here. Yeah, We're like, jumping look. to cover. Oh, look, this plane's coming. Look, you can get a great shot. Yeah. It's coming. It's it's, it's, it's coming it, out. It's like, holy shit. What? We dive to the ground. Like, oh my God, we're so dead. We're dead. <laughs> we're dead. Screaming. Yeah. That, I, I'm just imagining the memes Bitcoin Twitter are going to be coming up with when when they start listening to these uh, these stories that you guys are throwing out. It's just amazing. Well, this is all leading up to Bitcoin. This is before <laughs> we discovered Bitcoin. This is what we were doing. We were traveling yeah. the world making a portage in all these war zones, hot zones, riot zones. Like, Bitcoin is easy compared to that. It's like, like there was a saying, we showed, there, the people would say, if Max Kaiser shows up in your country, it's because your country is fucked. <laughs> you don't like, go to, like Iceland. When the, Iceland was melting, their economy was being destroyed in 2008. We were up there making a film about a year before it melted. It melted yeah. down. Like, Iceland was um, doing this crazy thing where the banks were borrowing. Forex. Yeah, okay, they were borrowing against their the equity of the banks to leverage up this huge real estate portfolio like a hundred times bigger than the size of the Icelandic economy. So I went, we went up there and made a film about, you know, within a year, this country is going to blow up and financially it's going to go to bust. And we made this film, sure enough, within a year, they had the Icelandic banking crisis. And, and then they, it became a big issue in the, in the Icelandic- How did we know? I signed a parliament. How did Max Kaiser know? Max got into a fight with the chief economist at Kalkthang on on the um, on the documentary. This is yeah. for Al Jazeera, and the guy from Kalkthang was saying, "You know nothing about economics. You need to take an economics 101 course. We're not going to blow up." This is he like said because Icelandic people. For every one of you, there's five of us. This, we we work five times harder than anyone else in the world. 
Yeah. And they're that's how we're going to do it. Productive. Right. But and Max said it was like the carry trade. And it's like the carry trade has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with this. And then it did. It was a lot to do with the carry trade and that unwound. It was a Ponzi scheme, as you know, and it blew up just as we predicted it would. And I said, you know, here's Hecla mining, Hecla, Hecla mountain, the Hecla volcano. volcano. And I'm saying, would you build your house on this volcano? And he's like, well, probably not. I'm like, well, the Icelandic economy is about to blow like this volcano. And anybody who's got any exposure to this thing, it's going to get wiped out because you cannot, I mean, for all these reasons, you could just mark them, you know, easy. Because a lot of the, the property thing, remember, they had all borrowed in either Swiss francs or euros because it was only at like 2% interest rates, 3%. Instead of in Iceland, it was like 12 or 13%. But then the currency crashed by 85%. So they all owed this money in Swiss francs right. or euros. After that, after that documentary aired on Al Jazeera English, the, that economist, he had a change of heart. He yeah. left the banking industry completely. And he said it's because of that interview and it opened his eyes and he realized he was, you know, chasing these paper dreams. Plus he was publicly humiliated. Publicly Every, everybody humiliated. was like, how did you get it wrong? Max schooled you. Yeah, I ruined this guy's life, basically. <laughs> there was another kid, a uh, teenager, and they have a special day where they dress up like characters and it's like high school crazy day. He was in the film and then like five years later. Oh yeah, he, he contacted, contacted us, us yeah. and said, yeah, I was in the film and- and Cause he, he um, had read that, he basically reiterated exactly what the Kaplan banker said. Cause they, they had a report, the Kaplan bank had issued a report this guy wrote and where he said that the there is no bubble there, that in fact, the Icelandic uh, worker is three times as productive as an average European uh, worker. And that's why the economy the, the valuations are justified. So this kid who was only just graduated from high school, he said the same thing. He said that to Max, he's like, no, the reason why, he's like, we are three times uh, the worker. So it, the propaganda had already trickled down and we didn't plan on that. They, they, we just interviewed this kid on the street and um, it was their graduation day. So what happens in Iceland, it's a weird thing, is everybody on their last day of school, of high school, they dress in these bizarre costumes like, Donald Duck, like they're walking around with these huge costumes. So Max is interviewing this this guy, and uh, who is wearing this huge costume, but we never mentioned the fact that he has a costume on, <laughs> and uh, you know he looks like this big dinosaur or something. Yeah. So Max, we never Max. That's like part of his uh, style. Like he didn't mention that like he's wearing a dinosaur outfit. He's just like so uh, your economy. What do you think of it? And he's like, we're three times as more powerful as a European worker. Yeah. He's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Then he he also realized that he had been sold a bill of goods and the whole thing was blowing up. And, and uh, who was that famous American economist who showed up like during this whole nightmare trying to convince them that they were right? Ken Rogoff. Ken Rogoff. Yeah. He wrote a report for them yeah. agreeing with Kaupthang. Yeah, agreeing with them that this whole miracle was taking but place. But that didn't almost get us killed. Like no. like the stuff in the Gulf and- No, the, but when we were making those films, send me out at 20 below zero sure. to do these scenes. And I'm wearing just a three piece suit. I'm not wearing any winter wear. Well, I mean, it was like April or May that we filmed that. In, right. So um, I do the scene and then you're like, no, you got to do it again. I'm like, my mouth is frozen. I can't really say anything. <laughs> Work. And she's like, no, we're going to lose the light. You got to get back out there. And I'm like, I'm fucking freezing to death. You're like, no, you got to get out there. Get out there now. Well, if you had any time, you also have a, 
that CIA thing. We did do one film about the CIA. Yeah, in Italy. In Italy. And um, we, we definitely got followed by them. Like, um, it was pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. Because they abducted a guy named Abu Omar, um, 18 CIA agents. And um, so the way uh, Italy is run is because of the mafia. They, if, if anybody presents the, a prosecutor with any evidence of any crime, the prosecutor has to investigate it. They cannot be told by the prime minister to stop. They cannot be told by anybody to not investigate it if they have evidence of a crime. So uh, this guy, Abu Omar, who was an Egyptian cleric, he, um, he, did, he was a bad guy. He was trying to recruit jihadis. But um, the Italian um, secret police were, had, were, had a, um, a bug on his phone. They were like tracking him, tracing him, gathering evidence to prove that he was a, a bad dude. But he had political asylum from, um, you know, he had been there for a few, like a decade or so as a, uh, with political asylum from Egypt. So there's a special rights under EU law for uh, somebody with political asylum. Anyway, the, um, the CIA determined that they were going to uh, abduct him and fly him to Cairo and where he would be tortured by Mubarak and uh, given evidence about other jihadis that he had recruited in the Balkans. So we went and traced this uh, track because it was like a bizarre story. The, 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 the only reason why the CIA got caught doing this was they stayed at this luxury hotel, the Principe in uh, Milan for three months. And it's so expensive, right? But they all, a lot of them use their real ID and their real credit card in order to collect the air miles because it was so expensive, but they were getting reimbursed from the CIA. So, uh, so they knew that these guys stayed there. Um, and then they abducted this guy in, um, off the streets of Milan and like three of them immediately called Langley. So uh, Italy was long before most other countries, they, uh, surveillance of mobile phones. So they had the records that these three calls were made to Langley to the CIA headquarters in, uh, from that one street. So they knew exactly where this guy had been abducted. Um, then they took him to Venice and flew him out of the airport in um, uh, uh, the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox private jet <laughs> that the CIA had leased and then flew him to Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany and then to Cairo and had him tortured. Um, so the, the guy, Bob Lady, who was the CIA um, sub head, he, he ran the CIA in Milan. He was like the sub chief, station chief. And we went around with this poster, like to his, where he lived in Italy, in this little tiny town outside of Milan. And we went to the pizza joint and the ice cream joint because it's Italy and there's this little tiny town and all it has is one ice cream joint and one pizza joint. And they, the people who own those places were so amazing. They were like, they hung the, the woman who ran the ice cream joint. She'd like put a poster at the, the wanted, the wanted Bob Lady. Yeah, we made a poster wanted Bob Lady <laughs> for international uh, abduction. Yeah, for international the CIA abduction. agents. And we said, uh, have you seen this man? He lives in this town. He, he abducted somebody illegally and he's a CIA man, Bob Lady. And they're like, oh, Bob Lady. Uh, no, maybe uh, Bob Lady. Do you know a Bob Lady? Uh, and somebody said, uh, does he like to dance? And I'm like, oh, he likes to dance. So we're dancing with, the, then we went over to, uh, we were, but we went to his house. We went to his house. So we, it's down a little tiny, tiny road, like those Italian countryside roads. And um, <laughs> we were afraid, like for the film though, we had to get this shot, right? So we were like, Max, ring the bell at the, at the yeah. gate. 
And we're like, I hope he doesn't answer. Oh shit, like Max, so I rang the bell and a freaking van pulled up like suddenly, like pulled up really fast, like darkened out windows and just like looked at us. And our, our camera guy, David again, he's like, you guys are gonna have me killed. I don't want this, like, let's go. Look, they're watching us. And then, um, but then we drove up to, back to Paris. So we went through, um, we went through Germany, remember? And we went to Ramstein Air Force Base. Because yeah. we were like, we need to get a shot at Ramstein. And so we went and filmed <laughs> at the at the uh, the gates. Like, and we didn't know, like we drove up there and like you're, like there's all these like towers. Mm. And then like two weeks later, some German guys, white, you know, national Germans um, who had converted to Islam we're going to blow up Ramstein. So they got arrested, but they had been under surveillance. I was like, holy shit, like, we must be on film driving up there, like filming. And we were like yeah. filming these cargo planes landing there. Yeah, and then uh, what was it? I think it was in Venice when I had that group of tourists and I had the Bob Lady poster and these are like Americans. And I'm like, you're American. This is guy, Bob Lady. He's a subdirector of CIA in Milan. He's wanted for abducting uh, Abu Omar from the streets in Milan. Have you seen him? Have you seen Bob Lady? He's a, he's abducting all these people. And they're like, no, I've never seen Bob Lady. But he was, um, it did. It was a genuine help, uh, uh, wanted poster. But um, it does say, it's a, it says, don't approach him. Don't try to arrest him or anything because he is uh, he is um, deadly in hand to hand combat. <laughs> so we were that's why we were like afraid. But the guy did get arrested in Honduras. His father had been a famous uh, CIA guy too uh, and ran Honduras uh, operations. So he was arrested in Honduras. But um, the Honduran uh, on an Italian arrest warrant. But then um, he. The Hondurans like uh, he we accidentally released him and he went back to America. So like yeah. uh, <laughs> so when that when that film air on Alphazero, uh, we were back in Paris and it went on the air, and within sixty seconds, Stacy noticed that our server at home, our computer, was getting pinged massively from outside, and sure she went in there to check it out, and it's all coming from Langley. Oh, it's uh, JSOC. JSOC. Joint Special Operations Command. They were all over our shit within seconds. But I wasn't. Um, I wasn't afraid because my a friend of mine who knows these things said, "If you can see them, then you shouldn't be worried about them. They're just sending you a message." Wow. Yeah, but that was the most political, overtly political thing we've ever done. Yeah, but it was very. But because because it was political, like we were over the top comedic. Well, the the premise of that film was we were going to go in the in the step, follow in the footsteps of these CIA agents, and go to the same hotels and shop at the same stores and ring up, see how you can ring up a five hundred thousand dollar bill when you're abducting a terrorist, abducting a suspected terrorist. Uh, so how do you do it? So we stayed in the same hotel, and that hotel had a, had, a, had a pool on the, in the room. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're making jokes uh, along the way about how to live it, live large, like a CAA agent. So we didn't get killed. <laughs> right. You know, that was the premise of the film, you know, but then when you're actually knocking on the door of a guy who's listed as <laughs> deadly in hand to hand combat and, you know, it's like you suddenly, <laughs> we need it for the, for the you know, film, Max. Yeah. Stacy's there. Like, I need I'm this the shot. I'm, I'm in like, the car. <laughs> wait a minute. The premise of this film was kind of funny. Now you got me 
staring down at a killer. I mean, what if he answers the door? What am I going to do? Hit we, we were revving the engine ready yeah. to fucking drive. What really the hell fast. am I supposed to do? You know, you're going to drive away. I'm going to leave me here with the killer. Some anonymous you know, house in the middle of nowhere. It was like so remote, the house. You wouldn't believe it. And that right. car, that, that van that drove up, it was, uh, it was obviously Italian secret police. So they just like drove up right away and stopped and just like like they were like this close to us just staring at us that you know for like the first few years of our broadcasting career our only audience were cia agents and that was our demographic essentially intelligence agents you know but, we had good ratings but they were all working for our cia you know but you know it was because it was total ignorance like um i don't think like professional journalists would have like found themselves in these situations like just like do, 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 do. <laughs> let's walk up to this yeah, no. let's go ring the doorbell of this guy like we were just like walking around with one camera and you know max's childhood friend. yeah yeah friend. this guy i knew for 30 years you know. <laughs> well, i made I, I made television with him in high school I, we almost had him killed like twice yeah. <laughs> but yeah we we eventually we, we haven't made anything recently <laughs> and he doesn't ever want to work with us yeah, again yeah. Yeah, it's tough. We, we made that uh, show in Paris. It was uh, my concept. It's financial news meets erotica. Wow, that's that's something else. You don't need to. Uh, forget, that. Well, that's the time. That's another for another day. No, no, no. We will. We, th th we definitely want to go down that route for sure. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's just. Just we'll we'll say Lafrick, okay? Yeah, look, look up Lafrick. Look up, up Lafrick and uh, and see the, see this. This was before Al Jazeera. Yeah. This was when we, Max was trying to like get us into <laughs> television, and we, we made a. Um, you could just call it soft porn. Um, it, uh, it borders uh, on soft porn. Yeah. Like me in it's my erotica. Me in my bathing suit, it's erotica. dancing. Yeah, what, I'm naked in the show. You know. <laughs> um, you know, it's on YouTube, but uh, Max is, is his proudest moment. Well, I, I think it, there's something artistic about it. You know, there's, I had a vision for it, and uh, I think I, I would have liked to have pursued it more. We made a trailer for the show. It's called The Frick, and it was a show that's going to mix finance news with erotica. But that was actually that scene of me dancing in my, my bathing suit. We filmed at ITN you know, uh, ITN in London. So they are international news broadcasters and they make Channel 4 News is filmed there and stuff like that. And our friend who since passed away, he was Australian and he uh, drowned in uh, the South of France, but he, he was a uh, director there and he got us into these studios, the green screen studios there to do this dance. Yeah. And I was dancing, but he got, it was like at three in the morning, right? That we went there to use these studios and he got a call and he's like, we see this woman, somebody from control was saying we see this woman dancing on one of the streets what the fuck is going on up there and he's yeah. like oh shit like he didn't know that the camera was broadcasting to a whole bunch of different like news desks right. the network. <laughs> but if, once you see this um trailer that max created for la frick show <laughs> um you'll see like like people like at a boring you know channel four news which is like what the hell is this woman doing suddenly on her? Yeah, you're you saying at the top of this that we different or look different or we are different. I mean, this has got to be the seventh or eighth 
version of us, you know, <laughs> sure. going back 15 years. I mean, okay, this is the latest version, and next year it could be a whole different version. There's been many <laughs> versions of this. So it's been going on for 18 years, different countries, different continents, different. It's fun to tell these stories, though, because like I, we haven't talked about them for uh, over a decade. But yeah, are... leading, it's all leading up to Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is like the, the, the was all these different things were galvanized under one Uber story, really, that, that now is blossoming into into its potential in a way that we're just seeing now. But it, it takes all that angst and it, and it converts all, all of that uh, subversiveness and it, and it takes all of the liberation theology movements and it, it converts them into this currency of resistance and the path out. But Max and I have yeah. a huge experience. Like not only was he a Wall Street banker and the Hollywood Stock Exchange, and I worked in Hollywood for Michael Phillips, you know, the taxi driver close encounters and the Sting, and I worked at international film distribution and like all this stuff, we had like a huge experience. So not very many people in the Bitcoin space are all younger and, you know, they don't have those world experiences that we have. I love hearing, like, I love all these new people into the space, like Brandon Quidham, uh, Robert Breedlove, like all these young guys, like with uh, really, you know, the philosophers, young philosophers, but they're, you know, they just naturally, because they're like half our age, they just don't have the life experience of, of like crazy stories, like almost getting bombed in the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, like, because we're like, we don't know any better, but, yeah. you know, uh, but that's, we're all part of the story. We're all part of Bitcoin, right? Like it, it's, it all adds up to a great community. And um, I love all these new people in, in the last year, especially like, it makes us better content creators as well, like because you know you're naturally uh, competitive, or like um, it, it drives you to be better. So you know I, that's kind of why we also talk about Renaissance 2.0. Is that you know if you look at Florence, like how do these like how, how does Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Botticelli, and Raphael all live like in one place at one time? Like how does that freaking happen? Like that's mind blowing, right? Like how does that happen? And um, yeah. that's like Bitcoin right now. It wasn't, you know, 2011, 12, 13, it's all weird and fun. Like, and, I'm, and I feel privileged that we got to be there, but like now is like the best of all, like all these ideas, like, because this is beyond, like what we were saying early, beyond uh, monetary value. It's like, it's a value that, you can't be taken from right, right. So the Renaissance was really, you know, a break from the church in a big way, and so they attracted these minds that put together the path out of church dark ages, dark ages. So here you have the fiat money dark ages, and you have uh, these group of folks coming together with a like mind. They needed to develop a path through the dark ages of fiat money, so they had that common goal. Yeah. So there's they're working together in a way, and mm -hmm. they're not competing with each other. And they're not going to Wall Street. You know, up until recently, all the smartest people in America would go to work on Wall Street. That was the job to go do. Damn now people that. are like, you know what? Actually, we're at the end of the Wall Street cycle, and they're all gravitating to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin makes you think philosophically, so that brings out a whole different element of somebody's personality and their spiritual selves that are now mixing and matching, and all these different ideas are coming together. Um, you know, like I said about this whole Michael Saylor introduction and buy of Bitcoin recently, up until that moment when he, when it, news broke that, hey, you know, MicroStrategy's got 
half a billion in Bitcoin. It was all the way from 2011 to that moment, which is now 2020. So um, nine years, it was up until, it was finally at that moment that I actually had said to myself, okay, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I mean, that was the big relief for a lot of people because up until that moment, we all kind of felt like maybe we're crazy. <laughs> but he, he said basically, no, you're not. And that, that I immediately went out and bought more Bitcoin. Wait, <laughs> yeah. you mentioned uh, those institutional players and this big money and Larry Fink not quite getting it and being fiat. I, I do want to say, like, to be fair, Paul Tudor Jones said one of the most, um, the, the best things ever said about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community, I think, which was that he said, um, Bitcoin is a bet on humanity. And and I thought that was a pretty amazing, like yeah. um, for a, a billionaire hedge fund guy to say, like, uh, you know, he's a gold investor as well. And he's like, gold is a bet on, you know, against humanity. You're yeah, humanity is usually a terrible trade. Right. I often sure. said if love had a ticker symbol, it would be go bankrupt. If, if you know, if love were trading on Wall Street, it would go to zero. If faith were trading on Wall Street, it would go to zero. If, if humanity as a ticker was on Wall Street, it would go to zero. And I've been making that comment for years and years as a Wall, former Wall Street broker myself. But, but to hear Paul Tudor Jones say that Bitcoin is a bet on humanity, that, big, that humanity's got a ticker symbol on Wall Street and people are buying it. It's BTC. They're, they're buying pro-humanity. This is the first time since all the deregulation of the 80s, it's probably the first time ever on Wall Street that you could actually make a bet on humanity and go long humanity. That that bet never has never existed. You, you could go long on, let's say, pharmaceuticals or biotechnology, and they might be working on something that would be good for humanity at some point, but then you've got the management involved, and you've got shareholders, you've got the board members, and some of them are not really good, and actually they're selling out to some other big pharma, blah, blah, blah. But here's a pure play on humanity. It's a pure play, fully integrated, indestructible, uncensorable, unconfiscatable, long humanity with Bitcoin. And it's recognized by one of the smartest people that ever traded on Wall Street, Paul Tudor Jones, without doubt. Picked it, figured it out pretty quickly. And now uh, that's bringing in a whole wave. Uh, and so, and now there's all these group of folks who are like philosophers or bringing into it. You know, Michael Saylor is like an astrophysicist, actually. He's an extremely high level technical engineer. You know, he's not just a CEO suit. You know, he, he actually is an extremely uh, accomplished uh, uh, engineer. Um, and so he he appreciates the aesthetic of it from an engineering uh Business. solution as, as, as an engineer. He's like, he said a couple of times that this is the elegant solution to this problem as an engineering feat is, is remarkable. You know, he just looks at it aesthetically like, wow, you know, this is like fantastic. So it brings out all these different people's best in their best instincts, their best, the, the best of us are, are being raised by Bitcoin. It's not being covered over, smothered over, talked over mediafied over like the best parts of us are being exposed through this and that's in reinforcing everybody else to think the similarly so it is this renaissance like once in a thousand year moment of a concentration of pure spiritual together that's going to leapfrog like we did back 
when it was necessary to escape the oppression of the church. Uh, the United States escaped the oppression of the colonial foreign dictatorship with the Declaration of Independence, the monarchy. And this Bitcoin is a global emancipation from the global banking occupation. The global insurrection against banker occupation is being funded by Bitcoin. And it's a global emancipation. And we see it traveling in other countries. You don't see it so much here in the United States because the United States has the most to lose. And they, so we, 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 they're the, the Noriel Rubinis and the Paul Trugmans and these people are very, very, very slow to adapt to this. But once you leave the US, you go to Cuba, go to Venezuela, go to all over Europe, go to France, go to Germany, you're in France. You know, um, it's got a different resonance and it's growing. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, super exciting. So like I said before, nobody controls it. So um, they just gotta um, just be humble about it and be like, look, it's taking me somewhere here and be open to the journey be open to the journey because you're going to the windshield of bitcoin's rocket ship is showing us stuff that nobody figured that they would ever see in their lifetime and so you can either look away and pretend it's not there or you can look at it dead on and 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 see it if you see it you know you're never going to unsee it uh, I want to follow up on that because looking at it dead on, I do want to bring this back to the Renaissance and the most famous painting probably of all history, of course, in the Louvre is Mona Lisa. And one thing about that is if you look at the Mona Lisa straight on, did you know that humans uh, can't see shadows very well straight on, but our peripheral vision can see shadows better. So that's why the Mona Lisa is so throughout for hundreds of years, so mysterious is because she's always changing with every every move of yours because leonardo da vinci understood very well all uh, perspective in so many deep ways that most uh, painters and artists didn't and when as soon as you start to look away from her she smiles at you and that's because you see her shadows differently but that's the same same thing the mystery and beauty of bitcoin is that it, it can take years to really understand exactly what you have when you own a Satoshi. That's why you just need to own a Satoshi. And it might take you three years, four years. It took um, Michael Saylor, uh, 2013, he dissed it on, on Twitter. Yeah, so it took him seven years to figure it out. But it's this, it's like all the podcasts, all the content, Bitcoin itself, the protocol, the four cores, all these sort of things. Like you're always looking at it out at of at your peripheral vision. You catch something about it. You're like, wait, what did I just see? Like, how did it do that? What's what's going on? So I, I think, you know, I, I think Bitcoin is like that. Like, it's evolved for me personally. Like, my understanding of it has evolved partly through um, forgetting about it for a few months and just like moving on to another story and uh, looking at it out of the corner of my eye or looking at it um, in somebody else view from their podcast or looking at it from this guy in Cuba writing to us or Alec Kanani in Botswana, like all these stories add up eventually to something that you're like, oh my God, this is the Mona Lisa and I'm not going to hang it above my stove. I'm going to like take care of it. It's, it's, it is mind blowing and it gets me every time. And, and 
thinking about Renaissance 2.0 and what you said about Florence and all of those amazing minds being, I mean, what are the chances, right? What were the, how lucky were we that those guys were there at that point? And, and if I, you know, analogize that against Bitcoin, that was very centralized. And that took a long time for their ideas to spread. Renaissance 2.0 is the internet. We are the Florence of the internet. And this is happening right now. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen at light speed. I mean, we think like the white paper, okay, 2009, 11 years into this thing, that's nothing. That's a blink of an eye. And look how far we've come. It's just, it gives you goosebumps when you think about it. It, to me, it's so surreal. Like we've been covering it for most of the life of, of Bitcoin. And I just can't believe like to see Larry Fink and Paul Tudor Jones and Stenton Druckenmiller like talk about this. We've talked about them, you know, in previous episodes 10 years ago of, of, of Kaiser Report and stuff. Like I can't believe like it, it like every time these people utter the, the word Bitcoin, it still is a shock to me that it's not just that room in Prague in a basement like, I, I can't believe, like, it feels so recent that, that we were there that I can't believe that we're talking about this, like, for real. Yeah, it's happening a lot faster than uh, even, you know, any can imagine, really. I think that it's always surprising me how fast things are happening with Bitcoin. Because, you know, it's just, it's just the acceleration keeps picking up and up and getting faster and faster. So that that's, like, hard to come to grips with because it seems almost on a day-to-day -day basis now that... But that's the network effect, right? So, mm. it, it, you know, we're seeing it in two ways. We're seeing it with the COVID virus, which is exponentially spreading because of the um, exponential, the nature of exponential um, functions, viruses, right? They double and you have this enormous um, spread quickly, right? So that's the network effect, that's the internet. And so now apply that to money. So Bitcoin is gold meets a messaging app. When you put those two together, you know, you end up with Bitcoin. So it's like, so the explosive growth with gold, with the same store value properties of gold. And you put those two together and, and you put in it, it creates this incredible ripple in the universe. You know, that's the only way to describe it. You two are so damn bullish and clear and full of so much fun. And the stories you've told have just been amazing. And you touched on your relationship um before it's, it feels like um a good 45 minutes ago but to bring you back to that there's probably lots of people i know there's lots of people that listen to this that that struggle with the fact that they've fallen down the rabbit hole and perhaps their partner hasn't their their, their wife or their husband uh you guys are in such a unique position that you can you can share this so like uh wholly together it's just amazing yeah yeah, I mean, we, we genuinely spend 24 hours a day together. Like, we're very rarely apart. So True, it's 18 years. Like, we met in an internet cafe in the True. south of France <laughs> in February 13th of 2003, and purely by chance. And we just started talking, and we, we haven't been separated for more than uh, in, in those 18 years, I guess, it's coming up on we've probably spent a total of maybe three or four weeks in, in aggregate in 18 years that we weren't in the same room. Or in the same boat getting dive bombed by an F-16. That's incredible. A few times when we had to take a trip, separate trips for whatever family reasons and stuff. 
But other than, other than that, uh, we haven't actually been apart at, at any moment. You know, and it's just been we were on this track of filmmaking, documentary filmmaking, journalism, and the Bitcoin story came along, and it um, was just so remarkable that um, it has put things into perspective, I would say, into context in, in a way that was unexpected, that uh, it, it gives a lot of faith. I mean, this is a story that you, this is a word you hear a lot. People say, Bitcoin give you hope, Bitcoin give you faith, right? And I mean, we, we are coming out of a many decades of extraordinary cynicism in American culture, in global culture. You know, this is a fact. We, we have developed a culture of cynicism, of snarkiness, of mean-spiritedness. Mm -hmm. And the values of charity and faith and these things have been, been remarkably degraded and trivialized and even mocked. But they didn't go away. So Bitcoin shines a light on all that stuff that we all have. And depending on how courageous we are, we let it out. The, 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 the weak and the meek are unable to let their courage out of the cage they built for themselves in their cynicism. The, the courageous and the strong are letting themselves step aside from themselves and let their courage out to do good things. And um, the result is a transformation. It's, it's, a, it's a transformation that is historical, if not biblical. Yes, very well put. Okay, guys, I've just looked at the time. Uh, it's flown by. It's two hours, 15 minutes we're into this. You guys are going to set a record. You're going to beat Matt O'Dell and Knuts von Holm at this rate. So... Oh, wow. And I still, I still have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. I still have the, the the final question I always ask on the show. Uh, so to to both of you individually, if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to, and why? If I had one orange pill left to give to someone. Jeez, like it's that's such a weird question because like 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 we just said like it's me and Max all day long, but we've built an amazing community of um, on Orange Pill Podcast Telegram group, which is eight thousand strong, and it's like this amazing, wonderful, like positive and and just uh, amazing memes and stuff like that. So like we've built our own Orange Pilled community. Um, uh, our friend uh, Sean Lennon has been orange pilled and um, created an amazing theme tune for our podcast. Um, we've we've just orange pilled our friend Nicole. Like like every single one matters, and and you know those are wealthy people. We have friends who are like the the reaching out to me from Cuba. Like we've had a lot of people recently from Cuba reaching out and we've only just learned how huge we are there. Like that like matters so deeply. And and 
in such an amazing way that, you know, the way um, our one of our guests, Nozomi Hayes, who you should interview, she's just like a genuine uh, genius. Your daughters want to see a woman in, interviewed, like she's, she's great. She's a liberation uh, psychologist who is, has been talking about Bitcoin, writing about it since like 2012 or so. But she said the, the, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it takes something negative like greed and turns it into altruism. And so, you know, I, I just feel like when, when you look at somewhere like Cuba for an American, I know maybe as a British guy living in Singapore and then France, like you don't have the same thing, which in America, like Cuba is our enemy, like for decades. And it's a lot of our policy is around Cuba and uh, sanctioning Cuba and stuff like that. So you grow up with this hostile notion to sanctioning them and controlling them and forcing them to be like us. And just as like, see these people just like reaching out saying we've been liberated thanks to you, like, because we've been orange pilled and thank you for that. It's just like, oh my God, like it feels like it was so easy. It didn't need all of this negative energy and negative sanctioning and negative stuff. Like it was just that easy. All you needed to do was talk to them as a person and, and let them decide for themselves about this, like sharing this information one of the qualities of Bitcoin is the censorship resistance. It's like, why all these sanctions against these, we can't go visit Cuba, they can't visit us. Like, like why, why not just like, Bitcoin invites all this harmony and like, just let's talk to each other. And that's an amazing positive result. And I prefer that to like worrying about whether we're gonna be bombed by these planes flying overhead or whether we can travel because we made a film for Al Jazeera or any of this stuff, it's just like, it's just like people be people and um, we'll sort it out. Yeah, I guess um, I would think like, who, who who do I know? Who do I see in the world that's experiencing the most misery internally because they are bitter note owners <laughs> and they are clinging to the old fiat past and it's eating them up inside. It's chewing them up inside. It's destroying their spirit. It's forcing them to open dodgy banks in Puerto Rico. It's forcing them to alienate themselves from their family. You know, who is the most destroyed by this new paradigm? This new if I only had one Bitcoin left, the one man who is experiencing the most misery in the world today, I would give it to him. And that would have to be Peter Schiff. Peter, help you. Except this, well, but, but even then, it's a mercy, it's a mercy act, it's an act of orange pill mercy. But he lost his Bitcoin as soon as he was given it, exactly. like he, he won't even accept mercy, he won't even accept That's what I'm grace. Saying. You know, even Jesus had his lepers. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, it's been such a great show. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share all of this and, and sit down with, um like I said, like a, a pleb podcaster, considering that you, you guys get millions of viewers and you're doing such great work, really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, you know, I, I really hope the, the listeners, if they don't know about you yet, for whatever reason, come and find you. Uh, where should they come and find you? Where, where's the best place to, to interact with you guys? 
The best place is our Orange Pill podcast telegram group. So t.me forward slash Orange Pill. So, uh, you know, it's a it's an amazing community there. There's lots of uh, cool people in the group. And if you know, we're there often, yep. but um, that's the first place we go now. We, we no longer go to Twitter so often. But, uh, you know, if we're not there, there's loads of really interesting people in the group who will guide you through the orange pill process. Excellent. And I can imagine why you don't go to Twitter since uh, Max likes to start riots in uh, in squares in Greece with, with, with less than 140 characters. It's good work. It's- oh, okay. I just go on this Telegram group more often because it's just more happening on it. It's more going on. You know, Twitter is just so, it's, it's just such a beast, really. So many things going on. I don't really... I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really follow many news sources anymore, even though I'm in the journalism business. I don't follow a single news person on Twitter, or I don't subscribe or have the app for a single news source, not Reuters, not uh, New York, whatever. I have not, no source at all. I don't even follow Zero Hedge anymore. And I used to follow them all the time. I really only follow the Orange Pill uh, Telegram group and uh my you know and to, to find out what's happening with with bitcoin because that's really the only story that is really important at this time everything else is it's just utter utter bullshit. it's like it's just an amount of anything. so so trivial so it's like going you know you're meeting leonardo da vinci you know, and you're complaining that you know yes. about some stupid shit. you know you couldn't get the, the second helping of mustard on your pastrami sandwich or whatever it's like it's so trivial like we're in the presence of something that is gonna just blowing everything away i mean I, this is the focus right now everything else is so it was already kind of trivial and insignificant but now it's it's, it's reached a new level of, of triviality that's important to note about our telegram group is you are in the presence of da vinci you know this is the sistine chapel as well this is you know, a beautiful Raphael, and and we uh, we we are in the moment of rebirth. And if you want negativity and the fiat dark ages, Twitter's there for you, Facebook's there for you. So I am kind of the enforcer in our Telegram group, and I do immediately ban anybody. Like I've just blocked them, and there's no uh, re-entry. I just like keep them out. If you're a negative, if you're a Karen, if you're depressed, like uh, you try to depress the group. You know, um, I, we don't need that. Like, the, this is like, there are plenty of places for you out there. If you want to be negative and uh, stink up a room, like go do it somewhere else. Like we're looking at a pot. This is the, the most positive moment in history. Yeah, the train is leaving the station, man. Get on the train or, but yeah. we're not, you know, the arc is leaving. The flood is here. Okay, if you want to argue about it, go argue somewhere else. I'm, have fun staying poor, you know, uh, <laughs> this is the arc of the, uh, above the flood. Okay. Get on. We'll take you right now. Get on the arc today. And the flood is here. Do it. You know, or you can be honest, you know, argue about the arc's not the right color. Yes. I, I thought it would be red, but it's actually not red. I ordered a red arc. What's all the, why, why are there giraffes on the arc? I'm not getting on an arc with giraffes. No way. It's like, okay, fine. Tell your story walking, pal. Get the hell out of my face. Bye. We're leaving. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. It's important to note, like, when that Florentine, the Renaissance happened, 
That happened amidst bubonic plague and inquisition. And so all these people who tell you, oh, the government's gonna ban it, that there's gonna be an EMP, like the internet's gonna go down. And you're like, okay, if you wanna bet against humanity, go there, go into the fiat world, go buy gold, go do whatever you want. Like here, we are the Da Vinci's, we are the Michelangelo's, we are the Botticelli's, we are the Raphael's, we are the Titian's. You can go be the people that are not remembered by history. Go ahead. I don't care. Like, but just don't try to sink us with your despair. You need to cowboy up and get on the Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm down. I'm already on the boat. I got, uh, I got a cabin. Never get off the boat. Never get off the boat. Is that from Jaws? No, from uh, Apocalypse Now. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much again. Take care and uh, really appreciate you coming on. All right. We appreciate you being orange-pilled. Welcome <laughs> to the community. Merci. A bientôt. Merci beaucoup, Max. Hey, Stacy. A bientôt. À la prochaine. À la prochaine. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening and thanks again Max and Stacy for taking the time to come on and uh, share all of, all of those amazing stories and insights. And there's so much to, to take away from, from that episode. Obviously, the, the amount of fun that, uh, that you guys brought to the show and all of your great stories. I couldn't pick a favorite one, being dive-bombed by an F-16, meeting the guy that was friends with Bin Laden, how that could have been the story of the century that could have made or break is that just the situations you found yourself in is just incredible the the riot in athens that max started with a tweet (laughs) i mean it's uh endless and i'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg as well you guys have probably got so much more that you could share with us but thank you so much for for coming on the show and sharing those uh, which um, apparently you, you've not really spoken about too much in public before. So uh, an honor to have um, had those stories shared on the show. Um, but some, you know, to, to the point of Bitcoin, some really deep thinking going on there as well. And I think Max called it the uh, insurrection and emancipation on a global scale, which is, you know, so eloquently put that here we are just trying to you know, escape this 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 system that has been forced upon us this economic legacy finance system that uh, is clearly broken and does not serve well it does serve those people that uh, at the very top of it at the very sharp end of it but by and large is crippling many other people and here we are trying to uh, insurrect a, a whole new system and this is the fight and you know, asking Max some, something that's weighed on me a little bit, asking him about you know, how do he and Stacy feel about uh, the responsibility that's on their shoulders to to help spread this word. And I think his answer is perfect. Uh, I'd never really looked at it like that. You know, the, he feels no responsibility. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is going to find people when they when they most need it, um, and that is that is so true. Uh, all we can do is as a community, as you well know, is keep memeing, keep podcasting, keep writing, keep YouTubing, whatever it is you're doing, talking to family and friends, educating yourself deeper about it, understanding it as, as far as you can and following the rabbit 
as Breedlove says, you know, just keep asking yourself, what is money? And just follow that wherever it takes you. And Jeff Booth said it on, on one of my interviews uh, recently, the one with Michael Saylor, you know, this is the fight of our time. Uh, and it's one day at a time. Uh, we're going to have to come up and face some some huge FUD that's coming our way. But I think as we move into 2021, we're going to have a, a nice bull run. Max would certainly agree with that. You know, his price predictions are always very, very closely watched by the people in the space. So, um, yeah, it's... It's go time, and let's see where we are at the end of next year, uh, because this thing, I think, is, uh, as many of the listeners already here know, this thing's here to stay, and it's, I guess, a duty of ours to, to steward it over the, um, over the next coming years and try and help as many people on board as possible. So I'll leave it there. Um, Please share the episode out with as many people as you can because I think they get a lot from this, uh, a lot of laughs and a lot of uh, kind of truth bombs in there as well. So before I sign out, please make sure you head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. If you're in the UK, start sharing that with your friends. Don't forget, if you are already using them, you can get your own code and start sharing that out with people that you are trying to teach about Bitcoin. If you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten, use that code, go start stacking, you'll get free $10. And again, you guys, um, you can get your own codes and start sharing that around. So when you are helping your friends and family come on board, you can share the codes with them and um, keep, keep the ball rolling. Um, don't forget to check out this one on YouTube if you would like to. Uh, I have the YouTube Once Bitten podcast channel. If you just search that on YouTube, Once Bitten podcast, it should, it should take you straight there. Subscribe and look out for some more content that will be going up there. And if you want to head over to the website, it's once-bitten.com. And I think that's about it, guys. Make sure you're looking out for 21ism as well because they're dropping some fire. Their website is amazing. I look forward to the next episode. Really appreciate everything you guys are doing with the liking, sharing, rating, or reviewing. And thanks again for reaching out on Twitter. Enjoy the banter and the engagement. And uh, yeah, let's go. Take care, guys.